Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmaila. This is David Lichtenstein, and this week we're going to be speaking about suicide or taking one's life in halacha. Is there ever a heta? Is it ever permissible? What about somebody's at the end of life and they're in terrible pain or they're under extreme stress? Or they could be tortured. It's wartime. It's like Shulchan Aruch says, Shol HaMelech was not considered a Ma'abedatz Miladas. He would have been killed or tortured. If the mafia is after somebody because he owes money. What about mental illness? The Warsaw Ghetto. The Crusades. Shulchan Aruch and Shin Mem says, We don't say Kaddish. We don't bury them in the Yiddish cemetery. We don't sit Shiva. In all of the above cases, would that be the Halacha as well? To discuss the halacha, we'll have Rabbi Mordechai Tversky. He's the Horan Stipler Rebbe. He will be speaking about the halachic aspects as well as a Rebbe Sha'etza. It's a line that my sister, Rebbe Samirim Longbrun, once said The difference between a handshake and a hug is if a person's on the edge of a cliff, a handshake won't save them, but a hug can. Give them, give them you know, the need to be able to give them the acceptance, the love, the to know that there's somebody that cares about them, that they cares about them strong enough, can help a person say, oh, their life has purpose. Life has something beautiful still in it. We will have Tzvi Gluck, the great Askin of Klal Yisrael, who deals with the suicides of the tri-state area. Listen to what Rabbi Tzvi says. This year alone, in, in the New York area, we had, that we know of, we had about 63 three cases that we were able to clearly document as a, uh, being suicidal, you know, that, that died of suicide. So 63 that are, are no longer with us, but besides to those 63, we have 362 clients that are currently being cared for that came to us because of issues of suicidality. We will have Elisa Bulow, the mother of Danny, who took his own life. Why should I do my homework if I'm just going to be dead tomorrow? Why should I brush my teeth if I'm just going to be dead tomorrow? We'll have Dr. Chaim Nissel. He's a master trainer of the American Association of Suicidology, an expert in dealing with people who we suspect may want to commit suicide, people who are uh, families of people who did commit suicide. He trains the therapists. What do we do if we suspect somebody may be at risk of hurting themselves? He'll talk to us how to deal with it and what the signs are. What are the simanim? Certainly taking them very seriously. You know, some people can be very flippant. Oh, don't say things like that. Don't think things like that. But no, that's not going to really accomplish anything. Negating somebody's feelings just make them have even stronger feelings. We will have Rabbi Wiener, Yehudaleb Wiener. He's the chaplain of Cedar sinai the, probably the largest Jewish hospital in America, in L.A. And he'll speak about end-of-life shyness that he gets because in Los Angeles, you're allowed to take your own life. They actually give you the medication to take your own life to commit suicide if somebody has a terminal illness. Those whose clergy was more judgmental about their about them were more likely to end up doing it. Whereas those who expressed compassion and spent time with them, listening to them and enabling them to talk and, and share, you know, people that had an opportunity to really talk it out and feel that the person that they're talking to is listening and really wants to understand what they're going through and hear them and be with them was very supportive and, and helps people sometimes often not to make that decision. The person was a was a was a real from id and. Um, and he, he wouldn't hear it. He just said, no one knows what I'm going through, and I know it's us, sir, and I know it's against the Torah, and um, I know it'll make my family upset, but um, you don't know what it's like to be me right now, and you can't stop me. Should make for a very uh, interesting program. And if anybody knows somebody who they felt, hey, this person could be in danger, you'll come out much wiser.
Our goal with these programs is to get smarter. And one of the things we heard, we're going to hear from the Racham Strifka Rebbe, how a hug could change a life. Here's a remarkable tale, Manya Lazarov. She's the shlucha at Texas A&M University. Listen to this story. So it was one day, and there was a young girl who was quite popular, and, and, and everyone kind of was, you know, like that it person that one's a little jealous of? Well, she, I was scrolling through social media, and I see on Facebook that she wrote, she's not feeling well. So I offered to bring her a chicken matzo ball soup. And she says, yes. And I won't forget this because shortly after I had my triplets and then I wasn't able to go and just spend an hour dropping off chicken soup, okay? But I went and I dropped off the soup and we talked. We talked about her wallpaper, her furniture, her classes, her, her clothing. It wasn't a deep, meaningful, moving, emotional discussion. It was life. And after that period of time, she started coming to Chabad more frequently, got more comfortable, became more connected to the community. And it was, a, it was a turning point for her. Well, as her journey became more connected, she shared how, in fact, she had been dealing with a lot of very heavy personal challenges. And so one of the things I know is I'm not a psychologist. I'm a shlucha, but not a psychologist. And so I have a local therapist that I refer students out to. And sure enough, we had her see the therapist, and she really was able to get stronger and healthier. And she graduated and went on her way. Okay, seems like a regular average day, week, month in the life of a campus shlucha. Lo and behold, two years later, she came to visit. And it was a Friday night, and she got all emotional. She looks around the room, you and Rabbi saving lives over here. And I thought to myself, listen, it's a bit of drama, drama over here. It's a bit dramatic. It's a chicken matzo ball soup. It's a challah. It's, a, it's, it's gefilte fish. Yes, Jews are connecting to each other, to Judaism, to them, their souls, sure. You know, the way to a neshama takes many routes. Sometimes it's a person doing a mitzvah. Sometimes, sometimes it's learning a piece of Torah. And sometimes it's through the stomach. On campus, most often, that's the, the gateway, is a nice Shabbat dinner. So I just kind of was a little dismissive. I said, listen, we're shluchim. We're not, you know, humanitarians that if we weren't doing this, we'd be digging wells in Africa. I thank the Rebbe. It's just as simple. She said, no, no, no. You don't know. I said, no. Like, where is she going? Do you remember that night? I said, what night? She said, do you remember that night that you brought me the chicken soup? And I said, yeah. Because like I said, it was kind of a turning point in her relationship with her Jewish identity with Chabad. She said, you know, you don't know the full story. I said, What's, what are you talking about? She said, I had found out really heavy news about my life and my family. And I was so alone. I was so alone in the world. I had no one to talk to. And I actually decided, I'm leaving. I'm leaving this world. I set the stage. I planned that night. I was going to say goodbye. And she described to me exactly the setting, the stage she had set. She said, and that night you came, and you sat, and you brought me soup, and you talked. And I realized one thing. I am not alone. I'm not alone in this world. I have people who care. 
Before we go to our program, we get a lot of listener calls, so we'll go through some of them. Here are a few calls about people who are upset about the language of the callers we used last week. I want to tell you, Rabdovid, who am I to be Mechaziki, but just listening to the messages that you played up last week from people who left, I don't know what type of messages. I just want to say, Rabdovid, I thought you don't need to tell you, but please carry on your good work. I'm I'm a younger man, almost 40 years old, and I'm telling you, don't take notice of these people who, I, I don't know what to call them. You know what I mean? I can try to be down the comfort, but one thing is for sure, they are not B'nai Torah. They shouldn't think for one second that they are B'nai Torah. Because if they think they are B'nai Torah, they are Mechalo Shem Shomagin, and they are Mechalo Kovida Torah. from people. To dare to speak like this, I'm talking about Sadiq and the Talmud Chachomen, like a dovet, to the Mamish Mazaka Sarabin, with the Torah Alpiano, bringing all different outlooks and shitters, the Khan and the Khan, the Kachodaka Shal Torah, keep up your good work, it's devoted what you're doing, you come up with so much clarity from your shows, mummies, or maybe Emerson from me to Sakhoma and Hashem. The couple of hotheads that called you and said kind of nasty things don't really represent most of Bachan nowadays. I'm a Bachan in Yishwai and Yishwai. I know that most of Bachan nowadays, they, they respect you, they think that you're very good to have and they uh, have a lot to learn from you. Now, here's a call we got from a bunch of people, quite a number of people. And what was it? I said last week that I went to a chasana, and when the, you know, chasana kala came down, I didn't stand up because I said it's chukas hagayim, and it comes from the church. Go to YouTube, watch a church wedding, that's where it comes from. Never in our Messiah did we have marching, people sitting on two sides of an aisle with flower girls and the music and chasana and kala, you know, with people, you know, uh, with photographers, it's all new, it's all taken from the church. Here's a caller who disagrees with me, and there were many such callers who brought a raya from the Rav, the Bartanura. I just wanted to comment that first of all, what you first of all what you said that that standing up by a chuppah is a Christian custom is pashut amaratus. The Rav Yishnaya signed your husband Neville Melach because you have to have covered for Oisei Mitzvah, and all the priests can hold it. You should stand up. It's, uh, if you look in the Yismachli, if he has a long arichus about it, Sefer Igras Torah has a little too about it. Brave priests can let him avoid that. You have to stand up. No, it's. It's a schwer one. The many in America. Mrs. Rell said he has no idea why in America they don't stand up. Mrs. Rell, they all stand up. It's just. Okay, so the Makar that this caller and many other calls, at least 10 or 15 or 20 callers said the same thing. Makar, they said, for standing up for a chassan is a, a Rav in the Mishnayish, Rabbi Vajim Bartanura, who goes on the Mishnah in Bikurim that says the Mishnah in Gimel Gimel says they used to stand up for the Mevi'e Bikurim. Because the Gemara Chulin says, Chaviva Mitzvah B'Shaita. So the Rav on the spot says, Oh, Chaviva Mitzvah B'Shaita. And that's why we stand up by a Levaya, right, when the mace passes. And that's why we stand up by a Bris when they bring the Tinnik in. So these people said the same thing. They said, which is a well-known thing. They said, um, uh, so for a chasen, we stand up because of this rav. Now, here's the problem with that. The rav does not mention a chasen. So 
the, in the Rav's times, I mean, the Rav wasn't that long ago, they, people did get married, and he's searching for other things. He only brings two examples, and he does not bring chasana. So, you know, that would be the first problem with the Raya, and I'll explain to you why he doesn't bring chasana. Think of it. By the Mevi'e Bikurim, they're doing a mitzvah. Or at the very least, it's a hechsha mitzvah. The Taisis Anshi Shem says it is a mitzvah because it says, He says the halich is a mitzvah. But uh, here by Chassan and Kala, think of it. The Kala has no mitzvah to get married whatsoever. There's no mitzvah pur of a Kala. So go, her walking down to the chuppah, when she walks down the chuppah, it's nothing. She has to get to the chuppah, so she walks. But she's not doing a mitzvah by the chuppah, nor is the walking any mitzvah. So even according to this fellow and all the people, you should not be standing up for the kala, which people do. Now the chassan. So the rush famously says, he says, it's no mitzvah to get married. It's a hechsha mitzvah. The mitzvah is pruravu. And by pruravu, uh, he says, yumakayim, when you have children. So by the bikurim, you're standing up for somebody who's actually going to do a Maisa Mitzvah. So to stretch it and say, now let's stand up for somebody who's going to do a Hechsha Mitzvah, it's like almost Ein Ladava Saif. I guess the Mevi'e Bikurim had to wear clothing. You'd have to stand up for the people making, their, you know, while they're getting dressed or putting on, because it's a Hechsha for the, for the Hechsha of the actual Mitzvah. Right, you certainly don't see from that Mishnah that you do. So we only would have one possibility, and that is according to the Rambam, who argues on the rush, Shulonach doesn't take a position on this, that the chuppah is a mitzvah. So here you would say you could be medamit, but again, the, uh, the Rav doesn't bring it. Now I would add on to say that according to this Rav, if you read it, Kipshutai, you should really have to stand up for all Oise Mitzvah. So for example, um, if somebody's benching, you should stand up for him. Well, start in the beginning of the Tariag Mitzvahs, uh, first ones, or you know, somebody's going to be Mechadish to Chodesh, you'd have to stand up for him. Somebody's going to say, Eidus for Kiddush HaChodesh, you should have to stand up for him. That's not brought anywhere. Somebody's going, I'm just going through like, in my mind the the Menchas Chenuch, the, 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 the Sefer HaChenuch. Somebody's baking Matzis, you should have to stand up for him. Somebody who's going to uh, to uh, make beer chametz, I'm going to burn my chametz. Everybody rise. So clearly, this was done in only very narrow situations, right? So again, my point is, the Rav doesn't bring this exact case, which is the the actual proof. They're not say mitzvah, except the ish according to nobody. The ish only according to one opinion, the Rambam's opinion. And so, to me, it's a, it's a stretch to uh, do this. And if you want to, you, you could maybe start standing up a lot of other times as well. It could be some of the other cases are different. Maybe a mitzvah of the tzibur, mitzvah the rabbim shani could be. But that was why I didn't um, like the uh, the answer that people bring. And the proof is, uh, I, I saw Ramosha. Uh, somebody showed me Ramosha says he didn't stand up for the chas and why? Because it's a chukais hagayim. What did he mean? He meant that it comes from the church. Now here's a caller about it. Uh, we got a few calls like this. Who was very upset that when I said we have to have empathy for people who are struggling with SSA because it's uh, it's a you know there's lots of diseases in the world and it's one of them. So here's this fellow. Um, I have a question about your point with regard to uh, SSA, uh, gay, and uh, you know that. You mentioned that just like Hashem created people that have three eyes or one kidney, uh, so too Hashem would create someone uh, like this. Uh, the question, and I hear the point, uh, my big question is that the Torah calls Mishkav Zachar a Tayeva and it's Iser Deraita. And I have a problem believing that the Rabbani Shalom would create someone um, that by default they're being either on an Iser Deraita. Uh, you know, as opposed to someone that doesn't have a kidney, someone that, uh, you know, has uh, three eyes. There's no, it's the right stuff. And, and 
the Torah goes so far to call this the Teyeva. Look, you obviously are not getting it. The Gemara Lamassal talks about a grusha, Teyeva he, by uh, somebody's Masa Grushasai. It's not talking about being a grusha's a Teyeva, it's talking about being over on an Isser of Masa Grushasai is a Teyeva. The same thing here. It's not a Teyeva if somebody is, is, was born gay. It's a Teyeva to act out about it, right? In fact, Rabbi Aaron Feldman of Baltimore has a very nice letter, which we'll publish online, to somebody who was gay, telling him, you know, how to deal with it, how logically, you know, and what, what a, what a tzaddik he is for not acting out about it, for not acting upon it. So when we're talking to somebody who got married in the hope of trying to create a family and it didn't work out, and we talk about the empathy that this, and the struggles that this person has, it's vakeret, like Rabbi Aaron Feldman says, that this is the tzaddik who's trying to be in it. He couldn't. So there's nothing toyeva. There's toyeva if you do the avera, just like a grusha, it's It's not the, being a grusha that's the, that's the toyeva, it's being over the avera of machzurushase, that's the so I think it's important because a lot of people just don't understand it. Now here's a call about somebody who um, was very upset that the Rav last week called Yeshiva Bachram selfish. For, firmly, politely, but firmly, it's a chutzpah to say Yeshiva Bachram So the Nusach bothered me too. I mean, why was I struggling with it? Because the Gemara says that a person is not matzliach in learning unless he makes himself achser al-bnei beisai that just like an oiriv, it seems, is an achser. And the Gemara says a story about somebody went to learn and he didn't have food in the house. And his wife said, please, we need food for the children. And he said, basically, it's not my problem. My job is to learn. So the Gemara already seems to imply that to be matzliach in Torah, you know, requires a level of focus and really some type of selfishness, that type of laser-like focus. So I can't say that I would understand it if, if you know, if my father said, look, I don't know where you're going to get food, I'm going to learn. But as I state to Chazal, so on one hand, I thought the level, the Lushin was a sharf Lushin, but I'm pointing out to you that it's not his Lushin. In fact, there's a story brought I'll see if we could find a story about Rabbi Tzikalchanan, that when he was a younger man, he learned his whole lot, but certainly with, with tremendous hasmada, and there wasn't food in the house, and he, they say the kids were pushed screaming, they were hungry, and he put his fingers in his ears, and he says his job was to learn, and he learned, and he became Rabbi Tzikalchanan. So I, I don't have an answer. These stories are, and the Gemara is like a sort of hard to co- comprehend, but if we have an issue with it, it's not with Rabbi Knopfler, it's with um, the concept predates Rabbi Knopfler. I would also like to, one, one last thing, people complain that often I cut people off, and th- that's true. And I think the answer is, is like, we have a very varied island here, but many of them, many of us suffer from short attention spans. And often we have speakers who, given the, uh, given the chance, would go on and on, and we try to keep our program at an hour and an hour and a half with great difficulty. And if I didn't keep on, you know, sort of, pushing to get answers, it would turn into three hours. I don't think anybody has that type of attention span. So the answer is yes, it's, uh, I do try to push to get an answer, but recognize that if you're, you know, if you're into, I've been interviewed, let's say on different stations, Bloomberg, usually given 30 seconds for an answer, sometimes a minute. And, you know, you'll see most of our speakers, the, the, their answers go well beyond that. This week, instead of uh, saying Dvartar and the Parsha, I'll try to give a brief synopsis of the halacha and the shittas and the paiskim about taking your own life. At the end of the program, we'll record a, a more lengthier six or seven or eight 
minute book where I broke it down more into the opinions. But here I'm just going to give like a snapshot. And of course, everything we're talking about is just for your deists. This is, there's no halacha lamaisa here. Go speak to your competent rav. These are not your competent rav. Somebody who can pass gandina in a fascist. Okay, so here's the issue. This basically seems to be a stira in Chazal about taking your own life. On one hand, we see Shol when he was surrounded. He 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 he, he tried. He threw himself on the sword and tried to take his own life. And um, he was afraid Shema Yisalubi, they would torture him. It's not clear exactly what, but that's the Pashtas. And Hanani Mishal Vazari did the same thing because of Shemad. So we have, you know, Chazal that say Hanani Mishal, it says, we learned the Isser of taking your own life from the Zayin Mrs. Benein Dayach, Aches, Dimcha Monafshisechem. So the Gemara says, Aches, to be Mamayat, Hanani Mishal Vazari, who did it for Shemad, and uh, Shol, who did it because of torture. Problem is, is that there's another Chazal that says that Hanina Ben Trajan, this is from Asura, Asura Haruge Malchus, when, uh, he was being roasted alive, which sadly they've done to Jews for thousands of years. He didn't want to open his mouth and let the heat in and allow himself to die earlier because he was afraid he was hastening his own death. It was a type of taking his own life. So he, he promised uh, the killer that if he took this fugim away from him and as he allowed him to die quickly, he would give him chayel So he was afraid to take his own life despite both torture and shmad. So we see he didn't take his own life, but Shol and Hanani Mishol Mazaria attempted to. So which one is Right. So we see that Rabbeinu Tam during the Crusades said that he, he paskined that people who were afraid that they would be shmad up during the Crusades or their children were allowed to take their own lives. The Ritva brings it in Marcus. It's in broad and numerous cases. But the, the Amshel Shleimer was a contemporary of the Beis Yosef. Paskins like Hanina Ben Trajan that you're not allowed to take your own lives. So it seems to be a problem. The Shulchan Aruch and Shin Memhei actually paskins. And he says Avada person's not allowed to take their own life. You, you don't bury the person in the Beis Akfaris. You don't sit shiva for him. Sharon Isaac with him, etc. Except if he's like Shoal, there is who's going to be tortured to death. So Beis Yosef Paskins like the Tzad that in, in a case of torture, like that Chazal, or I guess Shmad of Hanani Mishal Razari, you would be allowed to take your own life. Okay, this isn't that relevant unless you're an army soldier and you're in the Gaza and you're afraid you're going to be tortured or Shmad is not relevant today. However, the Besamim Reish, who lived in the 1700s, right? Much of you, this is four or five hundred years later, after the, the Rush, who uh, printed a safe, uh, there was Reb Shoal Berlin printed a safer called Besamim Reich, and which he wrote, he claimed to have found Chuvis of the Rush. And one of the Chuvis of the Rush says is that if a person is going through terrible times, he's depressed and he's in terrible poverty, whatever, the worst of times that people can go through, right? And he took his own life. You are masped him and you are, you do sit shiva for him. He's like, he's like Shoal. So this is a big step forward. He's saying the case of Shoal, of torture or of Shmad can now be brought into if somebody's going through real, you know, emotional, physical difficulties. He's suffering, which would would mean end of life opens up a whole new door, which the Pais can discuss. End of life if somebody's in a severe illness and they're in, this is Tanar Shalom is talking about cases in you know hundred years ago before they had anesthesia or any type of or if a person is um, being chased by like the mafia. They bring the Paiskim, we'll talk about he's going to be tortured, and can he or can he? He's afraid of, or he's afraid of terrible debt. This is the Bijana Rav. I mean, this is, you're talking about, he says somebody has terrible debt and killed himself because he was being chased by, uh, he said, he would be, he paskins clearly that, like the Bissamim Reich, and many, the Chsam Saif and others say, no, the Bissamim Reich was a forgery. So do we take the case of Shol and step it forward beyond torture and shmad and say severe emotional, physical, etc. difficulties? Where is that Negea? That's Negea Lamashal today. Come on, somebody commits suicide. Can you be Simon on these Paiskim and say we do bury him, etc.? 
There's another tzad, which Dr. Sam mentions, that you could, which is, I think, accepted in our communities today, is that we assume that somebody who committed suicide suffered from mental health issues at that point in their life, and they weren't of clear mind, and therefore they so, sort of have a din of like a shayt who's part of an mitzvah, etc., but would not be, uh, uh, in other words, mental health. We see a Michal Shabbos, and it's considered a type of uh, a disability where, where the person is not chayiv at that point. That is a snapshot. Do we take the case of Shol and move it forward into life? Both sides of the opinion. Uh, the Shulchan Aruch only talks about Shul, does not talk about contemporary events. And afterwards, there's Paiskem on all sides. Clearly, the Paiskem Neman, though, that even if you Neman, that the case of Shul would be relevant to somebody who's suffering, you know, either like the Bijan Arav uh, case, where the guy was being chased by creditors, or the case of, like, the Narshalom, where there's severe illness, etc., it would seem like all the Paiskem that it is clearly a Bidiyevit. So nobody's going to say give a heta to us. I just wanted to make that really clear. So it's more of a question of how do we deal with it post-fact. So at the end of the program, I go into it in more detail. We just added on like a six or whatever minute clip. You can listen to it there. And we also, by the way, at the end of the program, we'll, we'll have the riddle answers to last week, callers who, who had the correct answers to the riddles. But let's go to our riddle of the week. It says in the Pasuk, Go, Rivka said, go feed him and he'll give you the brachas. Here's the, the Pella. What does it help that Yaakov went ahead and he was makabal the brachas? Yitzchak wasn't mechavin to him. A bracha like that is not chal. It's sort of like a toys, a mekach toys, I would say. What does Ramban say by when he says, by, by Yosef, sichel es yadav? So why did Yosef turn them around? So the Ramban says, ki chashav sheto aviv bem. He thought his father made a mistake. And if this is exact Lashon Ramban, and if it's a, 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 an, an unwitting bracha, a bracha made in error, it will not be chal. So you see that a mavarech who's being fooled, the bracha is not chal. Yitzchak certainly thought he was benching Esav. Right, so according to whether Ramban learns that a bracha has to be given by kavana, which makes sense. I mean, if somebody benches something under false circumstances, I mean, you would think that there's no das of the mavarich, just like on a Kenyan sort of, you have that concept. But that's how the Ramban learns by by Yosef Why over here did what type of advice did Rifka give him? The bracha should not have been chal. That is our riddle of the week. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, that's the country code, 33-011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's uh, 02-372-0304. Let's go to our guests. Joining us is the Haran Stipler Rebbe, Rabbi Mordechai Tversky. He's a Talmud of Tells, Rabbi Yamin Pala, that's on the yeshiva side. He's also a Talmud of his father, the Haran Stipler Rebbe. Welcome, Rabbi Tversky. Shalom Aleichem, good. So, is there ever a heta for somebody to take their own life? 
Okay. We need to, that's, a, that's, a, that's a loaded question, and it needs to be, have, be broadened very, very quickly. The terms, listen, whatever I'm saying is not a psakhalocha, it's a hashkofa, a way to see, view the, this entire issue, and for which I've had, unfortunately, many years of dealing with people in struggle, struggle with depression. The term ma'abad atzma ladas, which is translated as suicide, ma'abad atzma ladas is a definition that came, came in contrast to Greek and Roman thinking. Where they where they treasured the body, and um, uh, and therefore at the height of the body's excellence, and when they said they don't want to decline, they would take their own lives because that was the ultimate expression of the body. And then they had you know whatever their vision of heaven was. For us, that's ma'abad atzma ladas. They destroyed themselves knowingly, willingly, because of their preoccupation with living and death. Torah, that, that's the definition that, that was, that's also to do, Ma'abad Asma Das. Suicide, as we know it, as a product of depression and psychological and psychiatric problems, is not Ma'abad Asma Das. It's a person dying from an illness. And therefore, the rules for how we differentiate between, let's say, a person who was Ma'abad Asma Das, they were not buried in the regular cemetery, they were buried on the outskirts of a Jewish cemetery, doesn't apply to for people who who die because of a uh, psychiatric uh, issue or even an overdose of, uh, of drugs. Now, in, it's interesting, Rabbi Tversky, that you would note, note that the Shulchan Aruch, when the Ramah, let's say, brings these halachas, that mm-hmm. you bury them, you don't sit shiva, and you, you, they're mm-hmm. outside the cemetery, they don't make, the Shulchan Aruch makes no distinction between somebody who was deeply depressed and somebody who wasn't. It's just one blanket rule. That's right, because because they were t- the context of Ma'abad Asmadas and the definition that we understand of psychiatric and psychiatric problems. They didn't have that. They didn't have that that level of of what we call of uh, of un- understanding that piece of human nature. That's, and that that is true for for many for many issues. That in our world today we have knowledge uh, that uh, trauma, right, uh, abuse can cause a person to fall to fall into a deep depression. I've, by the way, this, this, this I've had many discussions with Gedolim and most of my places of David Cohn, so Zengzen Stark. We've talked about it over, talked over the years. These, these, these psychiatric illnesses, they said they didn't understand, they did not know the depth of which we now see what Pekuach Nefesh can be even uh, an issue of as a result of, of, uh, of severe abuse. What They didn't have it. Well, that, I found two Makairis for um, the concept that you're discussing. The first one, interestingly, is from a sefer called Mavasar Levi, who is a Rishan. He wrote Hasagis on Rapsad Yagayan, and he writes that um, Shol killed himself out of uh, a mental, he was going through some type of a mental health issue. Right. Well, he was. Uh, and, all descriptions. And, and, and in the Shalos of Shuvah Samsaifet, it's a famous Samsaifet in Yeridea, Shin Chazaz, he also brings um, Talina Ruach Ra Biasasai. That's, that's mm-hmm. uh, uh, some type of a Ruach Ra frightened him. The Tunva Nakedle, and some type of a, mm-hmm. a, 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 a an anxiety grabbed him. It's it's it, but 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 you don't see it anywhere else. It's fascinating, and there must be a hundred chuvas on this from the marsham and from all the gedolei paiskim, and it's only two or three who talk about the point that you said that we see it now as an illness. So when a person dies by their own action, 
because of psychiatric illness. That's not the person died by uh, out of an illness, not out of ma'abarats or the das. That's that's ashkafa. I'm not talking about Allah. I'm just not. That's our. That's a broad perspective. The well, other part of the the other part of the perspective is the path of neshamas, which is a much deeper conversation to understand. As what as the the world calls it, gives a quick a quick title to Google. Google is a very sophisticated knowledge of the process of neshamas passing through different bodies through different lifetimes. And that chayla nefesh can be part of that because the process of tikkun of neshamas will go through different yisurim, etc., pain, suffering in different lifetimes in order to have a tikkun even for a previous gilgul, for a previous neshamas, neshamas in its journey. And we definitely can't judge that because unless we have ruach hakodesh to see the for the progress of any particular neshama, we can only say that we see that there are struggles that are beyond a person's choice. But they seem to be there, nevertheless. Would, and when you, that happens, would you say the same about any illness, pretty much? Almost, if you're talking about Yusurim as being an any illness, as being a tikkun for an, for a neshama, it could be for this lifetime. It could have been from a previous a previous kilgul, from a previous path of the neshama. Right. And if that right, and if that's the case, then there are things that are suffering so beyond our normal reach, which for which we're given insight that it's possible that that's what's happening. We almost have to say that for many of the uh, struggles that we're in our generation that were never in the previous generations. Maybe because we didn't have the ideas, or maybe because it wasn't there in the science. Well, why can't you just say that medicine is getting better? You could. It could be that medicine is getting better. Medicine, we're understanding the brain and its functions better because we have more uh, scientific knowledge. There used to be because a shite. Of, there was a chara shite of a cotton, and a shite just was like this huge circle that had right. any one of a hundred diseases that today they now have classifications for. That's correct. So it's, okay. it, it's but yes, yes, we take that into account also, and that's why we say the, the previous generations didn't have that level of uh, medical knowledge. So I can't, that they didn't write about it, it's, it's not a chiddush. So the, the takeaway is is that if somebody overdosed, committed suicide, the current, uh, the pie scheme today will them on that it's it's most likely to some type of a mental health issue the person was struggling with, and therefore we bury them in the same basic forest, we say shiva and we say kaddish. Correct. Okay. Is it ever, now let me go back, is there ever a heta for taking one's own life? Is there ever a heta? And what, why do I say that? You know, we know well, Shul, well, we know Shul well, took his own life, right? But there were there were there were terms in the Xeros the the massacres that took place with the Crusades where they were going out to convert to to convert by the sword. Right. And there were entire kilos. We have kinos, the Antishabov, kilos that took their own lives because rather than subject themselves to Shmad. What about uh it says Hananya Mishol Vazaria. Yeah would have uh, given in to Yisurim, mm-hmm. right? And so what about for, for just for, for being um, tortured? For example, we, we had a program, we spoke about the Warsaw Ghetto, and the mm-hmm. Kim who held that they're allowed to kill them, they're allowed to go out and put their lives in certain, in, in absolute, you know, definite death, because there's, there's no din of suicide because the Nazis uh, uh, tortured people to the point where at that point, at that point um, do you see extreme pain as a reason for uh, allowing uh, 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 suicide? We, we, we know that there have been, that there that, that did take place, um, and and the courage that it took to sustain the torture and survive was enormous. Was an enormous courage. Um, if in the uh, in the book, the um, Hasidic tales of the Holocaust, 
the, the, which were interviews really of the Blizzard of Zoyich He talked about the Nasoyan. He talked about the other words. There comes a point of despair from the torture, from the torment. And he said, he said it took tremendous strength to say, I'm going to still try and stay alive for another day. So we know that that was that was a that was a Nisoyan, and there were those who gave up. And that would be and that would be the, these people would also be buried in a basic no, These are these, these are Kedushim. And and if it was Yisurim too, if, even if it's Yisurim, would be like Shol. There's two ways how to learn Shalom the Gemara and Shol, but those who learned that Shol was because of Yisurim, that would be the yeah. same. So what would you say to this? The, there's a sefer called Nahar Mitzrayim. I don't know as far to show these the tremendous goyness of uh, Rabbi Vaji Yosef, but he brings a story of an Isha who was very sick. It was the end of her life, and this is before they had the type of palliative drugs they have to, you know, to ease uh, pain. Right, ease the pain. Yeah. And and she killed herself because the pain was too much, right? Mm-hmm. So if somebody called the Rav today and he said, "Listen, um, I'm in an extreme agonizing pain." I'm at the end of life. I, you know, it's the doctors have given me a week or two or three, and I would, I would like to. Doctor Kevorkian is in the next room. I would like to, which is <laughs> a big American, like that's. The, but that's really the question. End of life under extreme pain. Would they have the uh, 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 based on the case of Shaul or the case of uh, Hannah, who just jumped off the roof, or the, the many riots? Those who hold it, would would would, a, would any rub say you have the right to do that? I mean, there would be. That's uh, uh, I cannot uh, envy the love that has that that has that shaila. That's a that's a torment. That's a tormented shaila. Well, to torment the topic, you know. Torment the topic, yeah, for sure. Now here's another case he brings from Reb Shlaima Kluger, an Elif Lucha Shlaima, who was mm-hmm. asked at somebody who had so much, so he owed so much money, the mafia was after him, and he mm-hmm. killed himself. Mm-hmm. Would it have a din of suicide? And he says he since the, the basically the, the mob was after him. And he says, mm-hmm. right? If you have enough creditors, nasty creditors, it's like you're going through um, a fire and water, a death of fire. He says, misa, the nechshev kebez misas. Right, mm, and he wow. says, and they put him into jail, and Chevy Kashmi Kulam, so it's not considered Mavar Atzma. He says, mm. he says, the Mishu Anus Kishol Hamelach Ene Chashev Mavar Atzma Alas is a Shulchanarach Paskins. Right, end of your day, right, Shin Memva, right? So I'm curious, have you ever heard of a case where somebody basically committed suicide out of terrible crushing debt, bankruptcy, debt, pain? Have you heard of such cases? And what would Rabbanim in these cases say about same thing? Does it have a dinamabarat spell or not? I know, I know of a couple of cases in which there was possible that this was considered equal, equivalent of, of uh, misosinus, and they were given covered and buried normally. Like what type of cases? Can you fill in the blanks? It's a little bit difficult because people could identify. Don't change it a little bit. The people who the mafia was after them. Oh, oh, oh. And um, and they, they, the pressure was overwhelming. It was meant public embarrassment, financial disaster, and the and torture, etc. Whatever the mafia is capable of doing. Can you share with us, as as somebody who's dealt with a lot of, like you say, a lot of people with depression, have you ever had a, a, a case of a suicide? I've had cases where people were close to suicide, and of course we got them, got them uh, uh, psychiatric help right away. 
Um, but they might have been. Then we managed. I believe that we've we managed to save people from that level of illness. Pay pay attention to the warning signs. What what are the warning signs? Yeah, people trying saying they have no purpose in life. They're ready to kill themselves. They think that it would be kinder than the than the pain that they're going through. Um, you have to listen to their you listen to their desperation, and then give them try and get them to psychiatric help. They need the medication, the treatment, the uh, rehab uh, rehab hospital or a psychiatric hospital that can that would give them treat them with kindness. And showing them into a psych ward, man. Do you think the incidence of depression and therefore suicide has increased over the last ten or twenty years? Um, it would appear so. I don't have I don't have statistics. My impression is that we are living in a world that there are that's causing more people with depression than ever. Than simply because of the stress, the stress, the emotional uh, disasters, even the number of divorces and uh, and abuse which we've seen now reported. It, did it happen before? I don't know, because it wasn't reported. And now we know that there is, there is these things are happening, and uh, we see the, uh, the, the, the damage that has been done to people's psyche and the, uh, the, the life-threatening situations that puts them in the level of depression and despair that they're in. And what's causing it? Abuse, stress. And why why is there like more stress today than there was when I was? Uh, it's e- either we know, either we know about it or life has changed. Our world has changed. Why? Our world has become a stress every in every way. Technologically, um, people are bombarded with with information and with uh, with misguided misguided uh, thoughts and lives and, and pursuits that are destroying them. Okay. As well as uh, yeah, as well as as well as the tendency for being abusive. When people can't control their environment, they are vulnerable to abuse. They cause abuse, and then of course there's the uh, the pyramid of abuse as it goes through the education systems, where one teacher is abusing two children. Those two children become abusers. So that's four. The next generation is eight, sixteen, multiplies. They called the pyramid of abuse. If if any of our listeners were to encounter somebody who seemed severely depressed and was in danger of hurting themselves, mm-hmm. besides trying to get them to help, what would you tell such a person? It's uh, a line that my sister, once said, the difference between a handshake and a hug is if a person's on the edge of a cliff, a handshake won't save them, but a hug can. Give them, give them you know, the need to be able to give them the acceptance, the love, the, the know that there's somebody that cares about them, that they cares about them strong enough, can help a person say, oh, there is life has purpose. Life has something beautiful still in it. So you're 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 so, you're saying let's give a hug to this person. Yeah, but it has to be it has to be a, a, a wrap hug. around a hug. Yeah, a and hold on, hold and hold on, and hold on, not just a casual hug, not a pat on the back. Wow, this sounds mamish like it's coming from the Balshemtas. It did. <laughs> it came from the Balshem. Yeah. After Achimach, unconditional love is, was one of the premises that the Balshem lived with. Haran Stipler Rebbe, it was an honor to have you on. All right, we should be able to see there. See, uh, and there's much more discussion that we can have eventually about the pastors of the Shamas, but that, and that helps part of the perspective as well. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.
Joining us from New York is Tzvi Glock, who's the founder of Amudim. He's an Askin Ben Askin. Isaac B'Tzarech Etzibur, Ben Isaac B'Tzarech Etzibur, his father, Chaim Glock, was one of the big Askanim in the New York area. Tzvi is certainly one of the biggest Askanim in Klal Yisrael. Welcome, Reb Tzvi. Hi, welcome. Shalom Aleichem, Reb David. How are you? So, Tzvi, we're doing a program this week about suicide. You, this is, when they happen, you're the person who's there. Tell us, is it happening in our community? If it's happening, why is it happening? Is it happening, you know, uh, is it once a year? Like, give us a little uh, insight as to what's going on on the the streets. Okay, so it's a a very, very sad and delicate topic, but is it happening in our community? Yes, it's happening, unfortunately, like it's happening in every community. Um, it is unfortunately a lot more often than people want to admit. Very often when it happens, the families, for a variety of reasons, you know, don't want it to be known why it happened or that it was a suicide. So whether they'll say, you know, it was an aneurysm, it was a sudden heart condition, or during COVID, COVID was the cause of death, you know, because of stigma and shame. Um, to pinpoint why it's happening is very, very difficult because we, we've seen that mental health-related issues come from all shapes and sizes. So it's very hard to pinpoint. You know, could we say that people that have suffered trauma and abuse are possibly more prone to suicidality? There is some truth to that. Can we say that, you know, it's uh, hereditary and, you know, people, you know, the family members have history of mental illness? And, you know, if not treated, then generally, you know, it can go down the next generation or two. There is definitely science to that. But the one thing that we know for sure is that if we would have systems in place and people wouldn't be as embarrassed to reach out and to get help when they first see something, you know, definitely, you know, certain situations could become avoidable. And that's really something that we try to impress on people is that there's no shame in getting help. There's no shame in going to therapy. There's no shame in trying to address issues because at the end of the day, we need to try to save lives and give people a good meaning to live and not try to cover things up within our community, taking, you know, those opportunities away from so many who deserve them. Can you share with us one or two stories of suicides that you've been involved with? Sure. Uh, we have, uh, I could tell you like this. I'll give you first, the, 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 you know, I like to give the positive, right? Not the negative. So I just got an email literally two days ago, which was beautiful. And it was written, addressed for me to send it to my staff for them to, for them to hear this, which was a person who had been in a very, very big state of depression. She was single. She was not able to function. And someone in her school had realized what was going on. And worked with her to get her the courage to reach out for help. She had to have been hospitalized twice, uh, in which both of them were post a, a suicide attempt, one of them in which she was actually unconscious and in a coma for about two to three weeks, I believe. And at that point, you know, we had not given up on her. And when she came out of the hospital, there was an aftercare plan and psychotherapy therapy and peer-to-peer support with others that have been through this. And I'm not going to lie to you, I don't really track of every single, you know, case that we deal with, it just wouldn't be possible. But 
you know, and this one, I, I must have not heard her name or even remembered it for a couple of years, and I get an email uh, just two days ago, and I will uh, read it to you. Uh, Dear Rabbi Gluck, I've recently gone through some critical times in my life, and the Amudin organization was a malach in helping me put things together. I would love it if you could send this to your staff to show them the appreciation for all the work they do. Please remove my name from the forward. Dear Amudin team, I reached out to Amudim a while back, a few years, at the urging of a roommate of mine in seminary, realizing I was going through internal struggles. Although I was not aware of the extent of my issues at the time, I was warmly received by the case manager at Amudim and felt like I was the only one that mattered. The past few years have been critical in my knowingly now over a decade of dealing with mental health issues. After some life-changing events, things rapidly turned downhill. I found myself in a hospital after a suicide attempt, followed by a residential program while still holding on by a thread. The Amudim staff spent hours and hours, my case manager specifically, and I don't know how she found the time, to help me find a place, deal with my family, and the underlying issues. Baruch Hashem, I have been given the strength and resilience, and I was able to continue with proper care. Again, after additional issues coming up, I spent countless hours again working with the Amudim team and my family, and I am Baruch Hashem in a much better place today. This was all done with so much patience and care. Things were intense and the timely nature, and I felt like I was the only one on my staff members' minds. I have Baruch Hashem just given birth to a healthy baby after having gotten married a year and a half ago, and I know that this would never have been possible, and I would most likely not be here to write this email if not for the compassion, care, guidance, and hand-holding by the Amudim staff. May you continue to have the strength to be Hashem's shluchim in helping people heal with much gratitude, a thankful Amudim client. Wow. Share another story. Unfortunately, you know, we have stories that don't have the same ending. And, and sometimes they tie one into another, which is where we had somebody that came to us um, who the issue there was he was thrown out of his house due to uh, religious differences with his family, we'll call it, i.e. he didn't want to be from. This was from a Hasidic Shahom. And we spent a lot of time trying to get his family to be understanding. They would not. In the long run, he ended up getting himself into college, finding an apartment, was in therapy, and was really doing very well on the emotional side of things. And we were helping him the entire process. And one night, he reaches out, um, and he leaves a message, and the mess he sends an email, rather. And the email was... You know, I'm really trying to please be in touch. There's a lot we need to talk about. Case manager calls him back and he says, listen, you know, my, my sister is getting married and I really would like, you know, my family to allow me to come to the wedding. You know, this is my sister. I haven't seen the family. And uh, we reached out to the family and reached out to the family's rub and we tried, you know, doing whatever we can. And the family kept saying, maybe, maybe not. You know, this was the day before the wedding. And then at some point... The kid, unfortunately, uh, we found this out, you know, after it was too late. 
where he had uh, overdosed and died, but left a suicide note, and this was not somebody that was on drugs, so it was obviously, in a, you know, this is what he wanted, in which he said, if I can't even know my siblings and my parents want nothing to do with me, and they'd rather me be dead because I'm not living their lifestyle, I can't handle this anymore. And I'm sorry. And this was the result of, you know, the standing on ceremony by the family. So, you know, and, and then the worst part, and not worst part, this was the worst part, but afterwards the family tried uh, blocking his friends and associates that have been with him from even attending the Leviah because, you know, they wanted to keep this, uh, you know, only internal and, you know, we're looking for further blaming everybody else for his unfortunate demise instead of looking in the mirror and saying, you know, we should have been more understanding or we should have done more to help our child. Wow. But I actually received a phone call yesterday from a grants manager at a, at a family foundation. And they wanted some information about what we do and in order to discuss the potential gift. And she says, I just want you to know the reason why you came onto the radar is because a few years ago, we had a, fam a, a problem with a family member. And we reached out to Amudim, and it happens to be it's something that the Amudim case manager, you know, was honest and said, this is not something that we really deal with. But then a few months later, she called me back just to check up on me and to see how I'm doing. You know, this is another component of just showing compassion even from a stranger. So we had, um, he was 21 at the time of this story. But this was a, a, the case started when he was unfortunately 14 years old. He was a student in yeshiva and was sexually abused by a family member and had attempted to actually address the problem within the yeshiva. And as soon as the family heard what was going on, they ended up having this 14-year-old hospitalized for mental health issues because they decided that he's crazy and he's making all these stories up. And the only way to deal with this is by showing the world that he's crazy and locking him up in the hospital. Otherwise, who knows what he can do or what he can, you know, destroy the family. He was in the hospital for about two and a half, three weeks when the hospital psychiatrist realized that something was very off over here. And they ended up finding another family member, uh, an uncle who was willing to take him in, who believed the story. And for the next two years, he finished off uh, school. He ended up doing early admissions to college, living by his aunt and uncle, nothing to do with his family. This is a Hasidish family or a Lefisha family? This, is, this, is, this, one, this one happened to be a Lefisha family, a Yeshiva Lefisha family, and he was one of 11 kids. I'm just looking up the notes because I don't want to be inaccurate here. When he was 18 years old, he was heading off to Eretz Yisrael. Oh, I'm sorry, he, was, he wasn't 18 yet. He was almost 18. Had wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael, and he needed a passport. And his father refused to sign for a passport for him. Saying, when you're 18, you can do what you want. You destroyed our family. We're not here to help you. And it might be seemingly to some people like, wow, that's all you wait. But to this unfortunate, you know, child who had fought so much to get to where he was, and his father not allowing him to go to Israel to continue his studies, this to him was unfortunately too much. And he unfortunately hung himself in the bathroom in his uncle's house, again, leaving a note detailing this story, which is how we got to it. How do the families react when something like that happens? 
Everybody reacts differently. I had one family once. I mean, I try very hard, even though it's difficult, not to judge, no matter what, because none of us should ever be in those situations. But I did have one family once where the mother actually said to me, and I shake when I think of this, was, okay, I'm so happy, at least now he's not going to continue destroying our family. This was a different case. And I, 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 it took every ounce that I had to not, you know, lose it completely. Other times, families, you know, sometimes it takes a few months, even longer, after the tequila, but they'll actually reach out and say, you know what, we need to process this, we really messed up, you know, we need to understand. And they do have remorse, yes, you know, a little too late. And other times, people just get completely cold by it. And it's like, okay, we just, like, they don't even talk one way or the other. And there is a big machoikis in the mental health field. If talking about suicidality, you know, if there's copycat uh, issues from when people talk about it, that that gives others the strength to, quote, unquote, do it as well. I'm not a clinician. I can't say which one is right and which one isn't. There's definitely good scientific data on both sides. But what I could say is, seemingly, in our community, and I'll use the following example. If you ask somebody who drives, who just got a brand new Honda Accord, right, whatever kind of car a person drives, and say, wow, how do you like the car? I love it. How many Honda Accords do you see on the road when you're driving? So human nature is people will notice the car that they're driving a lot more often when others are driving it as well, because they're used to it. We have found the same thing when dealing with suicide. When people hear that someone actually committed suicide and they know that's what it is, then when there's another situation that comes up, they will realize it as well. So what we have found is not so much that it's copycat, but it's that people are realizing it more and therefore they're understanding that it happened. The worst thing is, when we try to deny it, sugarcoat it, or brush it under the rug, because that takes away on all sides. I mean, we say like Samad al you know, somebody walks in to a supermarket, you know, with a loaded gun and they start shooting people. I can promise you, no matter what the person looks like holding that gun, somebody will try to kill that person and not feel the least bit guilty about it. Do we agree to that? Yes. Okay. Yet, if somebody is a cause or a conduit for somebody else, whether it's because they abused them, whether it's because they didn't care for them, whether it's because they weren't there for them when they needed it, whatever it might be, and thereby another human being takes their own life, you know, nobody looks at it that way. And and that's the part that, that we're trying to drill home, is that Wasamal Adamriyaka applies on all sides of the coin. And People can get killed in multiple ways. They can get killed physically. They can kill themselves. They can get killed emotionally. They can be completely dead inside, you know, whatever it might be. And we as a community need to understand that and be able to deal with it head on. You know, there's no reason why we have to hear so much about these tragedies or after the fact. Or I have to hear from people in Kabbalah Kaddishas that say to me, Tzvi, we just had another 17-year-old that killed himself or killed herself. My boss wants to make sure that you don't know about it. Because when you know about it, you talk about it. I said, yeah, but I never speak about names. I never tell people who. No, but you're making a chilo Hashem in the community when you discuss these things. I said, isn't it a bigger chilo Hashem that a 16-year-old girl who had a whole life ahead of her is not able to continue her life, to go to school, to get married, to have a family? Isn't that the Chilu Hashem? No, but it's different. How is it different? Nobody can give me a follow-up answer. In your estimation, say, in the New York area, how many do you how many do you see a year? Look up and tell you what we've actually dealt with, but I will tell you that Baruch Hashem, a lot of the awareness in general is definitely working because we have noticed a major uptick in 
people contacting us with suicidal ideations and when things are attempted uh, a lot quicker than what they used to. So there's certainly been a tremendous, um, here, let me just, it's definitely been helpful in many, many ways. So this year alone, in, in the New York area, we had, that we know of, we had about 63 um, clients, you know, people, not necessarily clients, they weren't clients of ours, but 63 cases that we were able to clearly document as uh, being suicidal, you know, that, that died of suicide. 63, um, and these are they're all from families, all from families. Part. Yeah, all from, from families. families, yes. Yeah, I also had the honor for a few years of being a part of the New York City uh, Mayor's Office Suicide Prevention uh, Task Force. No, I'm sorry, that was the Albany, the Governor's Office, the Suicide Prevention Task Force. And this is where people from all around the state, mostly heads of like Department of Health and agencies, EMS agencies, et cetera, um, get together and try to discuss both the data, the rates, the prevention, and different things that, you know, help. And, you know, I was able to see really that this is an issue that's everywhere. You know, but the part that bothers me is that this is not a Jewish issue. It's not a Frum issue. But in the Frum world, whenever there's anything going on, we, we are Rahmanim B'nai Rahmanim. We're the first ones, whether it's Hatzola, Tonche Shabbos, Bikr Chaylam, Chesed Shal Emes, Misaskin, you know, helping people in Ukraine, whatever it is, we, as a, as a people, we care about each other, and we go to great lengths to help. But for some reason... When it comes to the areas of mental health support, to issues of suicidality, issues of addiction, issues of abuse, for some reason in that area, we're lacking tremendously. I could say that right now in the New York area, this year in 2022, uh, we have dealt with 362 clients that were had issues of suicidality, of which the the bulk of them were between the ages of 20 with 20 and 30, and the second highest rate was 30 to 40, and the third highest rate was teenagers. So these are issues that are regular and a lot more often. And, and yes, maybe it's less than other issues that we see, but like I said, one is one too many. A family that has to be told that one person is no longer here, that's not one person, that's generations of generations that's no longer here. Yeah, there's some type of a, a feeling in the Orthodox community that if, if you've sought any type of mental health help, you know, there's something wrong with you. I mean, and, you and, have kids and, that got married. Right? You yeah. make Shabbatim. Yeah. So I say the dirtiest word in the Jewish language is the S word. Because people are so scared of Shabbatim that they'll ignore other extremely important things. I believe we should be able to get a good Shabbatim for this one or for other family members. Yeah, and, and, and my attitude is, is that anybody who doesn't understand that going to psychologists at a time is very important. It's just not somebody you would want to be Mishadach with. They're just they're too primitive. I, I agree. Literally, that's why I would call them primitive. Look, I, I used, you know, I, I'm, I'm a public figure, and I, I've used psychologists many, many times for myself. And, and how do I see it? I see it as it's like somebody says in physical condition, oh, I used a trainer. You used a trainer? That means, does that mean you have epistemachla, you have cancer? No, I use a trainer because I want to get healthy. Really? Yeah, like the greatest athletes of the generations each have personal trainers, personal, every single day. So it comes from Raimamus. It doesn't come from shiftless, right? For the most part, people who have psychological are often smarter. 
What did David Amalek say about, you know, uh, He slept, he was so paranoid. He slept with 60 people surrounding his bed, right? He couldn't sleep. Why? Because the Shlomo was And guess what? The smarter you are, the more your mind works over time, and the more it's ideating crazy possibilities, different situations. But somebody who's not too bright doesn't have. So I will tell you, stupid people never use psychologists. They have no need for them. Right? Which is why by Kal Yisrael, who's Chacham Mikalam, right? We, we do have brighter people. We have a lot more people who suffer with mental health. And we should be using more psychologists. So I see using a psychologist as if I have a tsara, either in, in learning or in business or in family. I could sit there and grieve, or I could speak to a Chacham and say, look, I need a personal trainer. Could you get me out of this? What's the best way? I'm an Egea Badavar. I'm really, and I'll tell you something else. It's, it's, a, it's preventing my uh, efficiency. It's preventing me from being effective. And, you know, I work in a lot of worlds. My learning is very intense. My work is very intense. And I have to really have a mind that's very sharp and cutting. And I can't have baggage. I can't have bandwidth clouded. So whenever I have one, I have somebody I'll call if they help me through the situation. And today you could do it by Zoom. Walk me through how to deal with this. It could be with a child. It could be with a business associate. It could be with a personal thing. Why? Because I need to be perfect. I need to be, you know, by the Umas Eilam, you know, it's about how buff you are physically. Like how many Jewish football players are there? I think the answer is probably zero. How many Jewish basketball players are there? How many Jewish people are there changing the world intellectually? It's it's tons. So we need to be buff. So if if you've never used a psychologist, you're either I think you're either somewhat in some way you know just unenlightened or you're not too bright. So I see it more like a badge of honor of intelligence than something. I could say that, you know, me being in a high-stress environment, you know, work-wise, dealing with people's service all day, dealing with needing to raise millions of dollars a year, dealing with fighting off both sides of the coin. You know, people on the right, they're saying that I'm always making a little Hashem in what I do. People on the left are always saying I'm not doing enough. You know, no matter what I do, I'm always in a very, very high-stress mode. I, myself, am in therapy once a week and proud of it. And I say it publicly. Nothing to be embarrassed about. You know what? If, If you don't have a coach... You're not in good shape. I love Thank you, you very much. You. I, you're from the Lamed Vav Tzadikim. You know I believe that, right? I, yep, I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. And we'll be Bye-bye. Bye. Joining us from Denver is Aliza Bulo, whose son, Danny, Rahman al-Islam, committed suicide. Welcome, Aliza. Can you share the story of the share the story of Danny? So the story is long. <laughs> I did write anybody who wants a, 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 a fast longer look. I, I wrote an article on H.com, Donnie's Life and Loss. So Donnie had, um, had a very happy childhood. He's number six. Child, he was the prince of the family. Beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, lovely little boy with his, you know, long blonde hair that drew so many comments. And, you know, he turned into a regular cute-looking kid as he got older, but he was a gorgeous young child. And, um, and he was stayed home till age four, and he was really the prince of the family. And then school, and then he got more complicated and more complicated, and and the sunny disposition turned darker and more difficult. And really, by five, it, at that time, we lived in Long Beach, Long Island. Said, I want to walk into the ocean and keep on going, or I want to walk into traffic. Like he definitely had not just suicidality, but suicide ideation. He like was planning for how he would die. And by seven already, he would say, like, Why should I do my homework if I'm just going to be dead tomorrow? Why should I brush my teeth if I'm just going to be dead tomorrow? So it was a regular part of our conversation for years to the point where I had to just like get strong and and it's all the dark sense of humor with him also talked about it a lot and as as 
as his Amuna faded um, in his mid-teens, and I, I could no longer give him any reason why to live that had to do with Torah or Hashem or his Shama or anything like that, Tikkunim, nothing like that spoke to him. And we would sit and just work together, look on the computer, why live? Because well, he, he said, why, why should I live, Ima? I'm in so much pain. I didn't ask to come here, and I don't want to stay. I just want to go. So I said, why should you live? Because I love you, and I, I, don't, want, I don't want you to die. There's a future for you. He was brilliant, brilliant in computers. Um, he had friends around the world that he coded with. He, he actually coded part of Firefox. So I use Firefox in my browser because a piece of him is in it. But um, he was a brilliant kid. And um, and he cared about the really set up servers to like allow the Chinese and the Iranians to get around um, the the um, just to get around their government so they could communicate by social media, etc. That guy cared and he was thoughtful and honest and um, and he didn't want to live and we would talk about it regularly and he asked me why should I live when I'm in so much pain, existential pain. And what 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 type of pain was he in? Uh, you know, it's a it's hard to explain that pain because I I don't have even the tiniest tinge of depression. My name is Aliza, which means joy, and I have it. I have a bounce in my step all the time. I'm happy every morning when I say Moda'an. And he told me every morning when he woke up, instead of saying thank you Hashem for returning my soul to me, he was like, really Hashem, again, why? That's when he believed in Hashem. Got that conversation in the morning instead of Moda'an. Like, come on. Do the job for me, is how he felt. And finally, when it came down to it, he said, are you asking me to live a life pain so that I'll just spare you the pain of burying me? So I said, yes, I am, actually. <laughs> that is what I want. But I, how, how can I say that with a full heart? I couldn't. Of course I wanted him to live. But I, it was already over a decade of him wishing to die and thinking about how he would. And told me clearly, like you said, Emma, when I do this, it's not because I don't feel loved by you, and it's not because I don't love you. It's just I can't live like this. So I, I have to say, while I was sitting Shiva for him, the second day, somebody brought us food, as they did every day, and I reached for the salt and put salt on the food. And as I did that, I thought, how could I possibly even taste that this food, food needs salt when my child is dead and I'm in this much pain? Like there's... A, river of pain gushing underneath and on top of that I needed salt on my food and I thought that's how Donnie lived like he was able to have like conversations with people or taste yummy food or do fun things but underneath there was a constant river of pain always and it was the first time I experienced that, experienced that like bifurcation of um, feeling the deep pain and also life on top of that so I had a little more insight was going through, um, even if I could, because it's not my nature to be, I don't have depression, and he did, and bipolar, he had bipolar disorder, um, so it has swings, but um, but his depression got deep and dark, and, uh, you know, it asked me, should I buy you clothes, even right before it happened, he was in a much better, which I will tell you about, but... Um, is in a much better mood. I said, should I go get you? I'm, you know, going shopping. Should I buy you some new clothes? He's like, no, it's fine. I'm fine with what I have. Only after he died did I learn about this thing called the tunnel. And the tunnel is a period of happiness and calm when somebody enters into the tunnel knowing that on the other side, they're going to be dead. They already made their decision. They already set their date. They already planned the plan. 
and now they can relax. And that's where he was. It was just like about a week before. And he was so calm and so happy during that week. I thought, wow, I think maybe we turned the fire on this. Like, he's being amazing in such a good mood all the time. And then I learned that's what that was, was the tunnel. Like, if somebody's really grappling with suicidality seriously for a long time, if their mood suddenly changes to better, that's definitely a time for parents to watch out, not to relax, but to step up their watch. But um, I have to say, I read a ton of books after he died. That's how I process is by thinking. Um, and I read and I read and I read so many books on suicide and the why, what, and how. And the the book that gave me personally the most comfort was reading the only Danielle Steele book I ever read in my life, which was a book about her son's suicide. He also died at 19. And he was also crazy from childhood. And it was a lifelong struggle that she worked so hard, hired lifeguards for him, bodyguards for him, a second mother for him. Like she did everything. And there was no stopping it if you can't stop it. And I felt like for me, that was it. Like that gave me the tiny bit of comfort. Like I did everything I could and I couldn't stop it. And she did even more and she couldn't stop it. So I think there's some that you can stop and some that you can't. Did you have, after the death, did you feel any stigma, any judgment? That's such a good question. So our Rav came into the hospital room with us, and he said, um, we'll figure out what to tell the community. And my husband and I said, we already figured out what to tell the community. Our child had mental illness, and he died by it, by his own hand. That's our story, and we're sticking with it. We're not faking this at all. And the community knew he was a quirky kid, um, but I... We did, we did not feel any stigma. It was actually amazing. We had such an outpouring of kindness and so, so much support. I mean, but no, we did not feel stigma. Um, Hashem for that. Um, and I think people realized that we, I mean, not everybody knew, you know, everything that we did, but they knew that we were a loving, caring family and most likely did everything we could, which we did. But here is the story that I came up with help for some people who are questioning or wondering, like, what do you mean death by mental illness? Suicide is a terrible Avera. And we learned differently, yes, suicide is a terrible Avera, but death by mental illness, even if it's at your own hand, is not suicide. It's not the Avera of suicide. So I prefer, instead of saying committed suicide, which you said in the beginning, that I prefer to say he died by suicide, because commit is a sin, or commit is a crime. He died by suicide. So he died by his own hand, but really he died from his mental illness. So we have to just live with what Hashem gave us. And and we don't always have choices, but we always have the choice of how much we love our child and how much we love our spouse, turning towards our spouse and supporting each other through this rather than blaming or shaming or turning away from each other. You know, you want to be a, a team facing something hard. So I help people with that too, to be that team, turn towards each other and turn towards again. You have a long road ahead, just like you got to turn towards each other again and be a team to face it. Thank you very much. That was beautiful. My pleasure. Thank you, Eliza. Okay. Joining us from New York is Dr. Chaim Nissel, who trains therapists on how to deal with suicide. He's a licensed New York State psychologist. He's a certified school psychologist, vice provost at Yeshiva University, and here's an interesting title. He's a master trainer for the American Association of Suicidology. So the American Association of Suicidology 
is a national organization based out of Washington, D.C. They send me to different places all over America and Canada, and I teach a two-day course for them for therapists on suicide prevention, how to recognize and respond and prevent uh, suicide. So it's a, I do trainings for therapists on suicide prevention. You, you train therapists. Um, okay, they'll have a lot of therapists listening, but a lot more people who aren't therapists. You know somebody who you fear may hurt themselves. Give us a short, yeah. what do you do? It could, be a, it could be a child, the most painful, right? It could be a friend. Um, I've, had, I've had somebody who told me he's going to commit. So what, what do you, what do you, uh, so one answer is, Hashlich Yahatzchal Hashem. First thing, oh, send them to a therapist. Okay, but that's not taking any responsibility. And maybe, they, maybe the person can't afford it. Maybe the person, you don't have time. What, what would you tell you? Somebody you, you fear may hurt themselves. Train us all. What, what, what do we do? I'll regular Look, if Hill was so, able, if Hill was able to teach the whole Torah regalachas, the Torah of suicidology, yes, I would ask you to do it all regalachas. I think certainly taking them very seriously. You know, some people can be very flippant. Oh, don't say things like that. Don't think things like that. But no, that's not going to really accomplish anything. Uh, negating somebody's feelings just make them have even stronger feelings. So it's take them seriously. Um, wow, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm nervous to hear that. Why do you say that? Why are you feeling like that? Engage them so that you're interested in them as a person, in them as a valuable member of society, and, and that you're really concerned about them. That there are different reasons why people have thoughts of suicide. One of them is feeling isolated. Nobody cares about me. You know, nobody would miss me if I'm gone. And showing your care and concern and connection is certainly important for them. Um, Obviously, you said, you know, let's try to get them to therapy. But in the, in the immediate sense, it is make sure they're safe. Um, did you do something already to try to kill yourself? Are you planning something? You know, if, if, if they're planning, if they have means, if they are close to doing it, you know, there's going to be different steps. Some, sometimes you have to call Hatala, you know, and, and they need a hospital. Sometimes it's, as you said, therapist. But certainly engaging them and connecting and trying to understand what's going on sharing empathy, really caring and trying to understand them. Before you go in to say, oh, don't, don't think like that, don't say things like that, and sometimes well-intentioned people will respond, you know, I'm, I don't want to hear you say that, don't say that. But if this is how they're feeling, and then you're rejecting their feeling and what they're saying, that leads to them feeling more isolated. So we really actually want to engage them in the conversation. So let me take away. The first thing is three steps. Number one you're saying is, Take them seriously. First thing, right. um, don't assume that it's uh, don't assume that it's uh, that they're just. Um, I want I want to share with you something that happened in my life that was very you know I learned a lot from it. My father, the Chayim Lavracha, had um, cancer. They and they cured it. It was prostate cancer, etc. And then later on, he used to tell me, you know, oh my back hurts me a lot. My back hurts me a lot. And my feeling was, you know, people get older, they have arthritis, they like to catch a lot, etc. And then afterwards, they found that he had another cancer which had not been discovered. And I realized that when people say something, there's often yesh dvarim begav. You know, right. so your first thing is t take them seriously. And then the next thing you said is, um, and maybe ask them the question, like, are, are you planning anything? Like, is this, are you, do you have, because it may, it may require, like you say, something to do immediate. And the third thing is they feel isolated for the most part is just, you know, just be there for them and empathize and listen. And you say, and, and a bad thing that you could do, a negative thing is to say, oh, don't think those things because that's not validating who they are and what they're feeling. It's almost like you're adding on to 
this sense of isolation and rejection. Those are the three steps. Right. Three to do's and one not to do. Right. And it's interesting. We had on the Haran Stipler Rebbe, and we asked him the same question. He said, what do you do? He said, you give a big giant hug. I mean, you would agree with that? Okay. Yeah. It, it, it de- depends on the particulars. He could give a big giant hug. I couldn't. But, it, you know, the hug, whether literal or figuratively, yes. Okay. So let me ask you another question. As a parent or a friend, there's a machoikis, there's a disagreement. Some say you address it head on when you see somebody who you're afraid. And some say you may be introducing an idea into their head. You see somebody who's really, really down and out, right? The bottom of the totem pole, right? And you're afraid. So do you say, hey, you know, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Or, oh, my goodness, if I say that, I'm giving them the idea. How do you, how, what, what, what's your opinion on this matter? Child, friend, et cetera. Right. The, the, the number one myth around suicide is by saying it or asking somebody, you're going to give them the idea. All the research has been consistent that that's not true. You don't, if somebody is severely depressed, they may be thinking about suicide on their own, or they have thought about it and said they're not going to do it. But you suggesting it or asking them about it directly will not cause them to kill themselves. No difference if somebody said, are you thinking of being Michal Shabbos? Maybe yes, maybe no, but nobody's going to say, oh, I didn't think of that, but that's a good idea. Now I'm going to go out and, like, it just does, that's not the way we operate. Are you thinking of shoplifting? Maybe they, they were or they weren't, but it's not going to be that somebody asked me a question and I'm going to say, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to go out and, and do something. Asking the question is showing I care about you and how you're feeling and your safety. And sometimes people who are depressed have thoughts of suicide, so I'd like to know. And it's like, so it's a, so say that again. It's the number one myth, you say? It's the number one myth. And a lot okay. of therapists feel this way as well. It's part of the training is the therapist to practice asking. Asking helps them discuss it and and understand that a thought does not mean they're going to act on it. It's and that's part of the evaluation, but asking will not cause somebody to then go out and do it. So what factors drive people towards suicide? Okay. We're going to take three main, three main drivers. One we mentioned already is that feeling socially isolated, and it's subjective isolation, meaning someone might say, oh, they're in a yeshiva, they're in a shul, they're in a community, a family, they have tons of support. If the person feels all alone, they have no support because it's subjective feelings of isolation, right? They feel isolated all alone. Is one. The reality is the way they perceive it, not whether it's actually true or not. Correct. Correct. We have to figure out how to boost both of that for them. But if they're not feeling it, then that's not affecting them at all. Uh, the second one I would say is somebody feels they're a burden on others. Maybe they're sick in getting, you know, debilitate, more debilitated and they might feel that they're a burden on others. And it's like people would be better off if I'm gone. That kind of feeling. I've had people who, you know, are talking about suicide. How do you think your family, how would it affect them? And they might say, yeah, they'll be upset at the beginning, but then they're going to be better off. They don't have to deal with me anymore. So it's a feeling I'm a burden and they'll be better off. And I say the third one is really pain, like intense emotional pain. They're feeling stuck in a situation. There's no way out. And they're just in emotional pain, depression, tremendous anxiety, other psychiatric conditions. So you say it's a feeling of isolation. They're just being anal-ain in the veld. They're just loneliness, basically. Yeah, loneliness and that nobody cares about me. Nobody would miss me if I was gone. Yeah. I'm not serving any purpose. I'm taking up space. I- Wait, so I, and so I, isolation means I'm I'm just alone, ain't alone, right? Right. Um, the second one is a burden. I serve no purpose. I'm only a burden. Which means if if somebody's beloved by their family, it would make it 
harder, and and, and alternatively, and also it, it should help with one, it should help with isolation if there's a strong family. But the third one is intense emotional pain. So I say people who have a loving family, if they're committing suicide, it's probably the third one, which is intense emotional pain. Or we may think they have a loving, attending family, but they, they, they don't feel that. Right. So it's so a subjective uh, feeling. Right. But yeah, but the pain that comes with depression and life will never get better and and being so distraught is, you know, it can really be a trigger. So what are the warning signs when somebody's just struggling or when somebody's suicidal? So warning signs for depression would be, you know, like warning signs for suicide would be severe depression, talking about suicide or thinking about it, don't excuse somebody preparing for it, something of that sort, Um, being withdrawn, withdrawing from life. You know, not going to show, not leaving their house, not going to work or yeshiva, increased alcohol use, maybe more risky behavior. Somebody told me he would go to the throughway upstate and drive 120 miles an hour. I said, what happens if you run off the road? Said, oh, then I'd be dead. Like it would just, you know, it wouldn't affect him. It wouldn't bother him. That was you know, very scary. Like that, so the reckless behavior that somebody might be doing, um, sometimes perfectionism, where it has to be a certain way, and if it's less than perfect, then it's a total failure. That type of black and white thinking could, could be a factor. And being, uh, you know, having sexual identity oh. difficulties, you know, um, LGBT, that type, somebody who's trans, a very high rate for suicide among uh, you know, people in that, in that population, their struggle. How do you respond to, because we get a lot of this, Fortunately, we have a lot of young listeners, which is not such a good thing. And they, they don't believe it exists. They think it's all, you know, Averis and Taiva. They don't believe that there, there is such somebody who, ha- who is, you know, genetically or just the Matthias, you know, uh, um, um, suffers from SSA. And they think it's all, you know, Mashchasa. How do you, is there any way to talk to such a person? It's like trying to talk to an, an anti-vaxxer. And why do I say that? Um, I say that because if they meet somebody or have a family member who has this, it's that type of speech that could probably kill them. That's why I ask. Yeah, yeah, you're right, because initially they thought gay meant that higher rate of suicide. Then they said, no, no, it's not being gay that triggers suicide. It's being gay in an environment that is rejecting, that it's not being accepted that triggers suicide, which is more the isolation. I don't belong. I don't fit in. I'm not accepted. And for a from person who's gay, it's a terrible struggle. I want to be from, but this is how I feel. It's, it's a terrible struggle of Everyone I met who struggles with SSA, with, with uh, same-sex attraction or being gay, the not a single one wants to be like that. A type of people can say, I have a type for this or for that, I'm, you know, and I struggle. But being gay is so deep within the person as an identity, as is, this is where I am. I don't want to be like this, and I can't control it. If they could, you know, they, 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 they cry and dive and every young kipper to, to change them, but they can't change. It, they, they try. They, you know, their paratherapies don't work. Somebody is, you know, you said genetic, I don't want to say genetic, but wired in a certain way, like it, it you know, they, they can't change. And you're right, by not accepting them, by forcing them, you know, back in the closet, so to speak, they increase risk for suicide. That person is even more at risk. They can't even be themselves. They can't even share it with anyone. Not saying they need to, you know, announce it, you know, from the BEMA, but to, if they if they confide in, the, in relatives and close friends, they need support. That's that's the thing, not rejection. Okay, so you said um, withdrawing from the world, 
talking about suicide, which would make sense. These are the, 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 the dangerous warning signs. Yeah. Increased alcohol, sort of drug use. It could be, it could be all these, you know, painkillers that are, you know, that you get from doctors or risky right. behavior. Particularly, they start acting crazy. It's like they have a death wish. Those would be the things to look for. But just somebody being in a bad, you know, being bit, being in a particularly bad mood is not something you would say is a warning sign. Right. You know, it, it depends what's coming along with that mood. Irrational behavior. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now you have a family uh, member. Somebody has a family member who's going through a particularly bad time and they're struggling and you're worried. So, I mean, you said you, you know, increased empathy. Anything else that you would add to that? Um, increasing connection with them and with others, being there for them, really trying to show that you're there for them, and trying to engage them in, to get them to be open to some type of therapy, some type of support. Speak to the rub, speak to your doctor, speak to a therapist, that there is help out there. And, and it's like any other illness that somebody has. You get, you get help for it. What do you do for people who can't afford it? There are many affordable options out there with with Fidelis or clinics that, that have excellent therapists that work for insurance and for individuals who can't, um, you know, there are a lot of low-cost options out there. You know, you, you're right, though. You're raising this. Most private therapists, you know, are not part of the insurance plan because of the paperwork and because of the fees. But there are many, many from clinics that take all the insurance and and offer very good level of care. Well, you would think that from a people would be less of a danger because it's an Avera to kill yourself. Shouldn't that be a reason that we should be less? Like these are, you know, it's a from a person. He doesn't want to be Ivan like Sertzach. It's, it's an, it's a, of course. It's a, so would that, would that be a preventative measure or no? So it is helpful. So for somebody, I've heard it many, many times, somebody says, I think about killing myself, but it's an Avera, so I would never do it. And I say, you're right. It's a big Avera, and, you know, but that, that should be protecting you from doing it. So for a lot of people, it is. But for some, then the question is, then how come some people could, right? A very from person, but he told himself, how'd that happen? The, when somebody's in a suicidal crisis, they have tunnel vision. They focus on the problem in front of them. They, they can't problem solve. They can't think of any other way out except for, for death. They're just not thinking. That's why it's an onus, as we said. Like, that's why it, it becomes they can't think of anything else. Um, when somebody says to me that they want to kill themselves, they're thinking of suicide, I do this kind of work. So they, I, usually I help them understand they don't want to be dead. They want to escape their pain or their situation that they're in. They're in some type of situation that they need to get out of, pain, usually. And I want to help them get out of the pain, but I think there are other ways to do that besides suicide. So, so it's that narrow tunnel vision which can block someone, you know, from kite, you know, from, from being protected for them. But a lot of times it is protected, where somebody says, I, I'd like to do it, but I can't, kind of error, and that's, you know, good. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Um, take any comments about suicide very seriously. With professional help, with care and concern and following up questions, stick with it, because sometimes treatment takes time. It's usually going to be medication and therapy, uh, sometimes just one or the other, but sometimes it takes a few different medications until they hit the right one that, that's really going to make a difference. But I've seen that people are able to stick with treatment, even when it's not working, and stick with it and try something different. You know, the vast majority of the time are going to be helped, and the vast majority of people that have thoughts about suicide do not go on kill themselves. So, so you know, I, I think... Treatment is really is really key when it comes to these kinds of things. And if you're with somebody who's refusing treatment, 
then you call a therapist yourself and you try to figure out how that the therapist coaches you through how to try to get that person in. As I said, there's sometimes when you force somebody, either on, you know, a fellow or the police, to a lesser level of dragging them to a therapist, to a lesser level of encouraging and trying to get them the help and let them feel the love and concern. And, you know, like, like you ever said, give, give them a hug, whether it's literal or figurative, but really to, to connect with them and let help hopefully give them the feeling that there are people that care about them. And, and they're rooting for them. But I, I also want to thank you, um, David, for addressing this topic. It's one that people would rather not think about, let alone talk about. Many therapists are reluctant to even bring it up with clients. But we have to understand that talking about suicide will help prevent suicide from occurring. So I guess it's best to you, uh, you know, for, for bringing up this important topic. Thank you very much for your time, Reb Chaim. And I, um, I hope you educated our listeners. They certainly know a lot more now than they did before. Thank you so much. Okay. Health of a good show. Thank you. Be well. Bye. Joining us from Los Angeles is Rabbi Yehuda Leib Wiener. He's the rabbi of Cedar Sinai. It's the number two rated hospital in the United States by U.S. News and World Report. It has 950 beds, which makes it one of the largest hospitals in, in the United States. And I say it's the number two rated hospital. It's in a Fremont. It's in a Jewish neighborhood in a, in a Jewish city. I mean, it's, it's after New York, L.A. has the most Jews. Vis-a-vis Maimonides, I just that I'm involved in, that is probably the worst hospital in the United States. Just to juxtapose it. So just, I got in a political uh, thought of my own, okay? Um, so Rabbi Wiener, is, um, he's the chaplain of the hospital. He's also the Rav of Knesset Yisrael, of Shul in Beverlywood. He's a very big Talmud Chacham, as well as being a chaplain. Welcome, Rabbi Wiener. Shalom Aleichem, honored to be with you. So Rabbi Wiener, you're the chaplain of the largest Jewish hospital on the West Coast, and you have many, many Jewish you know, patients. How often do you come across the problem of assisted suicide, which is legal in California, and patients, Jewish patients, saying, Rabbi, I would like to you know, undergo, I don't know what, to commit assisted suicide. How, is that something that ever comes your way? Yeah, it comes up frequently. It's not, I would say it's not every day, but this is uh, unfortunately becoming more and more common, and it's a fairly common issue. And what is the case? Like, walk me through. What would, what would, what would the situation be? Like, explain it to us. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a few ways that it happens. The way, the way that it's legal in California now is that a patient who has a terminal illness by which they're expected to die within six months um, is allowed to ask requests from their physician um, aid in dying medications, and um, they have to self-ingest in California. So, um, and then they, there's a there was a 15-day waiting period. Now it's just a two-day waiting period. Um, and then after a brief evaluation, they're allowed to ingest this medication, which they often do at home. But sometimes they start the process in the hospital, and it's patients. Sometimes they are, you know, suffering horribly, and there's nothing they can do about the pain, and they want it to stop. And sometimes we have patients who are afraid of the pain that's going to come, um, and because of their terminal illness, and so they start going down this route, sometimes even from patients. And what do you t- talk to me? You know, how do you deal with that as a Rav? So obviously, I mean, we're always machmer and the chomer ha'yaser. I mean, this is not something that we um, encourage or validate. It's, it's uh, halachically and hashkafically, it's, it's not something that we support. But we did a lot of research into this when it became legal. It was legal first in Oregon many, many years before in California. And they kept very detailed data. And one of the things that we found is that Oregon, they asked people why they were engaging in this. They, they, they wanted to understand the, the mindset. They assumed that it was going to have to do with, you know, either finances or depression or not being a burden on their family. But consistently what they found was that 
it was a desire for control, to have control over their dying process, where they died, how they died, when they died. And what's fascinating is that they also found, and we find this in California as well, that the majority of patients who request aid in dying medications actually don't end up doing it. They Just by having that, that access, sometimes they feel like uh, they, they have that control back. And so a lot of times my role as rabbi in the hospital, you know, it's very delicate because obviously I don't want to say anything that could imply that um, I support this decision or that I'm encouraging it in any way. And so we have to be very careful about that. At the same time, we want to try to support the individual as a human being to be compassionate and kind to them. You know, it's, it's sort of like the, the Ron and Kasuba on the Amst of the Bay Rebbe, where um, the Ron says that it's mutter to daven for someone who's suffering to die. So the Ron says that it's mutter to daven for someone to die, but the Rosh Hashanah is quoted in the Nishmas Avraham. He says that in, even in a case where someone is suffering so much that you're davening for them to die, you, sh- you have to be mechal Shabbos. If something happens to them on Shabbos, you need to save them. So it, it's, it's possible to feel like compassion for someone even as we are not engaged. There's data that shows, for example, that the amount of time that a doctor spends sitting with their patients who are requesting aid in dying, the more time the doctor spends sitting with them, listening to them, the less likely they are to do it. They actually asked, there was a study in Oregon where they asked the patients if they have clergy, and they asked them, was your clergy judgmental? about your decision or were they emotionally supportive and and compassionate to you? And they also found that those whose clergy was more judgmental about about them were more likely to end up doing it, whereas those who expressed compassion and spent time with them, listening to them and enabling them to talk and and share, you know, you know, it's like the people that had an opportunity to really talk it out and feel that the person that they're talking to is listening and really wants to understand what they're going through and hear them and be with them was very supportive and, and helps people sometimes often not to make that decision. Can you share with us like a story or two that stick out? Try not to share any details. I'll, I'll, I'll blur the details a little bit, but I remember the first patient that we had that was from a Shomer Shabbos patient who did this, even though the family um, was discouraging them and the family also asked me, could you please, you know, express how horrible this is? And, and he knows this person was a, was a, was a real from Yid and, um, and he, he wouldn't hear it. He just said, no one knows what I'm going through and I know it's us and I know it's against the Torah and um, I know it'll make my family upset, but um, you don't know what it's like to be me right now and you can't stop me. And um, we did, I mean, people, you know, really did try, but he, you know, he was an adult who was able to do things on his own and he did. And after he died, um, unfortunately, he, he did go through with it and when we called the Chavagadisha to come pick him up and start to arrange for the burial, the, you know, this was, had, was brand new for us. It, it was, they started asking questions, you know, wait a second, did he told you what he was going to do? And he had a psychological, you know, a psychiatric evaluation and he knew the Homer HaIsser and everything. And yeah, he knew, I mean, we tried to stop him, but he did it. They said, well, how, how can we bury him? in our cemetery because, I mean, usually we find some reason. There's always, we can always find a reason that, you know, the person was not thinking clearly and we still, you know, even though the Gemara says, we still find, you know, we find a way, a, a talia that we can say, it's the or whatever it is, and it's slow ladas. But in this case, they re, we started thinking like, well, what's the heter here? But why, why, but why wouldn't the heter be that he was in great pain? 
Well, yeah. I mean, a after we thought about it and really talked it through, it it's clear. I mean, you have the the Chassam Sofer as a tshuva of someone who was in a prison cell and he and he ended his life. Um, he was all by himself, so there was no umdana. You couldn't say that you know someone else did it, maybe. Or so it was clear that he did it. It was also obvious. And the Chassam Sofer says no, that he had he was obviously had severe tsar, and uh, so y you could be mekel and you could bury him. So so obviously, yeah. After we like kind of talked it through and went to the sugya, it became clear, and we did we he did get a, a burial. Kadasukadin, but it was just like this kind of shock at first that like, wait a second, all of our normal heterium, like how do we have them here? Except for you're right. I mean, it, once we start recognizing that this is um, not really necessarily a choice sometimes, it's it's part of, you know, this person had an illness that was a physical illness and, and he, it pushed him also into what, we, you know, mental health struggles that oftentimes uh, is also an illness that's, that's very difficult to deal with and it's not really necessarily thinking so clearly um, or making choices that he, he really wants. It's not like he was saying, this is, I'm doing this out of denial of Olam Haba or Tchiyas Amesim. It was the suffering that he was experiencing that was not enabling him to think clearly. And it's interesting because it's the, the Shiloh is more complicated than you would think because I think that if the person was physically suffering, right, I think that's, I mean, you have, uh, I mean, the, the, the Shulchan Aruch says if somebody dies like Shaul HaMelech, who died because he was afraid of Yisurim, there's no din of Mabadas Philodas. But I think today it's more, much more complicated because in a place like Cedar Sinai, a person could be very ill and he's not going to have pain with all the anesthesia and stuff they have, right? Right. But so, you have to, so you have to look at it more as a mental issue than a than a than a than a what you call it than a you know what I mean. Right. Sometimes we call it existential suffering. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. knows this person knows he's dying. He knows he has a terminal illness. He knows how, you know, what's coming. And even if he's not feeling physical pain in that situation, like there's still suffering. It's real serious. You know, there was another one. There was there was someone who um, ended their life very publicly through um, in this way. And people people knew what had happened. I mean, they didn't do it in public, but everyone knew that they had died by suicide. And um, they kind of had a very private sort of family only funeral after and it was kind of like hush hush a little bit but then at the Shloshin the family wanted to do an Azkara and they, they wanted to have some a little bit more of a kind of a formal ceremony and, and the Rav was concerned because he thought he was concerned that this might Im imply some kind of support or you know public support and is that going to like encourage that? It was, it was, he, was, he, was, he was giving a hatchet to it in effect Yeah exactly exactly so he asked Rav Usher Weiss and Rav Usher Weiss spoke about it and said you know it's not if, if they do an Azkara it's not, that's not going to, you know, make people think that it's mutter. In, in fact, it's going to show people how broken the family is, and it's actually a deterrent for other others. So it, it's not that we, we sh it's giving it a heksher. It's actually, you know, supporting the family. And, and that's actually the, the Lashon of the Chum Sofri says, in these cases, we're machmir for kavod mishpacha. We're, we're mekel and avelos. We're machmir in the chomer iser, and we're also machmir in the kavod for the mishpacha. In this, in this case, the mishpacha needed that sense of, you know, communal support and gathering. What do you tell patients who are in, you know, in great pain and 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 either physical or emotional? What do you what do you tell them? Yeah, the main principle is you know to be there emo anochi batsara to sit there you know uh, and to be there by Husham, listening, trying to provide you know emotional support. I remember I remember we had a patient who um, was dying. This was not a suicide case, but it, it expresses the principle. She she was dying. She was a young woman and um, she was really suffering. And the hospital people assumed that it was depression. So she started getting antidepressant medication, and it didn't help. It just made her unable to sleep or eat, and it wasn't helping. And so as a chaplain, they got us involved and started talking to her, and the goal was to listen, to find out what's it like to be you right now. And as she's talking, it became clear that the one thing on her mind was the fact that she had a small child, and she realizes that her child will never know 
her mother because she had a terminal illness. So as we're listening, we had this idea. I thought, you know, there's this concept of making it savah and, you know, a written, you know, ethical will where she describes who she is, what her values are, what, she, what her hopes are for her daughter. We also made a video so she could talk to her daughter. And she hadn't, you know, thought about these ideas. But once we actually did them and gave her a chance to um, express herself in this way and kind of address those concerns, it, the depression really lifted. Obviously, she didn't become like, you know, a happy-go-lucky, but she, she began sleeping again and eating. And but this was a person with a, ter- a person with a terminal illness, you think? Yeah, but the goal, I mean, because the goal is to listen, to be there, to feel, help the person feel like they're not alone, like someone who's open and, and compassionate and focused on them is totally with them and listening to them and helping them kind of express. And sometimes, you know, when people have a chance to articulate what they're going through, they even find their own sources of strength and they realize, you know, who they are and what they're capable of. And, and that, that's often, you know, that, that's mitzad, uh, the patient. Well, can I just, can I just, can I just yeah. tell something? Okay. They're going to ask you, Mashmi MC says, Eke Asher Eke. Hashem says, I will be what I will be. Rashi says, just like I'm with them with this tzara, I will be with them by all tzaras. Uh-huh. Now, like, what kind of an answer is that? Like, you turn to Hashem and you say, I'm in terrible pain. Please help. Like, when I say please help, I mean, like, make, like, a miracle, make a nest, make something turn around, send some light. I mean, you know, you're God. I mean, make a nest, right? And what does Hashem say? I will be with them. And there was he saying, there are times that I, I can't do that. Whatever. He can't do it. But he says, you know what I can't do? I, I will be with you. I'll hold your hands. I'll hug you. And if that's what Kaviyachal says, so isn't that the paradigm for what we should be doing when we see somebody in pain? Like, I always thought you have to try to fix it. Or, and many times, it's not fixable. The person doesn't even want it. Yeah, it makes it worse sometimes. It's just, it's just, eker asher Being there is so powerful. I, that's what the Chumash says, right? And that's what you're saying, the same thing. Exactly. So, exactly. Being there, listening, helping people to articulate what they're going through, feeling that someone's really listening to them and with them. But do you see suicide of young people, too? Of course, unfortunately, yeah. Do you have any insight to it, why young people are committing suicide? I mean, I don't have specific insight in terms of research or, you know, specific psychiatric analysis. But I, what I can say from my experience is oftentimes these are not necessarily people who want to be dead. They, they want the pain to stop. They, they, they want the experience that they're going through. They don't know how to stop it. And sometimes it's really not a choice. It's, it's part of a, a disease. The, the mental struggle that they're going through is, is an illness like any other. Like just like we wouldn't blame someone who has cancer, sometimes people aren't thinking straight because of the mental illness that's actually not enab- allowing them to function properly. Properly. It's not that it's a moral failing. And, it's, and like I said, it's not that they want to be dead. In fact, we, we know this from the Golden Gate Bridge studies, which have shown that, uh, unfortunately, you know, that's a common spot where people end their lives, but some do survive. And a study was done where they interviewed um, the people who survived. So 29 people who all survived from suicide attempts from the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And every single one who was asked of those 29, they were all asked, what were you thinking as you fell? Every single one was experiencing regret and thinking to themselves, I don't want to be dead. It's not that I want to be dead right now. I just, I didn't know how to, how to deal with what I'm experiencing. So we, the goal is to try to help, especially families and, and patients themselves, to kind of talk through what they're experiencing, to talk through what their options are, and, and help them to feel that, um, you know, there's someone who is there to listen, and they, 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 and they can express their, that presence and, and compassion, and that they can feel comfortable, you know, opening up. They shouldn't be afraid of us. And there's an atmosphere where, you know, they can see that they can talk to somebody. So as a chaplain, if drawing on all your experience, if there was a message you wanted to leave the listeners here, what would it be? 
the message would, would be to have as much compassion as we can for people who are struggling to, on the one hand, stand firm in our emuna and in the messages of the Torah, that, you know, obviously we don't compromise on our values and our beliefs and we don't justify, you know, people ending their lives at the same time trying to recognize, you know, how much pain and suffering families go through and individuals go through and how difficult it can be to articulate that pain and how it's not really their fault and that they really need help. And sometimes it's extremely difficult to treat even with a lot of help. And so the best thing that we can do is to provide compassion, support, try not to be judgmental of, of people and kind of making assumptions about their families or what's happening behind doors, but rather being there for them and showing support to them and, and true chesed uh, to the best of our ability. Okay, Wiener, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Let me give a, a brief in, introduction to this week's shear, and it's it's varied. It's uh, not that many gemaras, but the gemara darshins aches dimchem lanafshei seichem. Right from the Zion mitzvahs bnei noach as hara lechaynek es nafshei dimchem plural lanafshei seichem, including yourselves. It's was hara lechaynek somebody who wants to kill themselves. Now, by the way, what's why would you need a chiddush for this? If we know you're not allowed to murder somebody else, why would you you know need a reboy that you can't murder yourself? And I would say that the, you would think, look, it's my body. Let me do what I want with it. So from here we say, no, it's it, it's not your body. Or even if it is your body, you're still not allowed to do that, depending on which way we go with it. Siddi Gemara says, oh, you can't commit suicide. Tried to commit suicide during the Shas Hashmad. He jumped into the fire. Siddi Gemara says, no, ach. There's a miyot of ach that uh, that a person is during, if he knows he won't be able to be oimid bin asayin b'shas hashmad. I'm quoting the Bede Kabayis and again, Simon Kufnan Zion from the Beis Yosef. So the Gemara says, and you see the same thing, by Shol ben Kish, what happened, Shol threw himself on the sword, he tried to kill himself. Why? She he was yore shema yasu lo yisurim kashim. She yocha lim sarats milamisa, that ach is marba, somebody who's afraid he's going to get tortured. So for example, we spoke a few weeks ago during the Holocaust, this halacha of Shol ben Kish was the Makur that people who didn't want to get captured by the Nazis would kill themselves and they were still considered Kedoshim. And by the way, this is brought down in Shin Mem Hei in Hulchas HaVelas, Godel Ham Abedatz Miladas, it's Shin Mem Hei Gimel, Vuhu Onus, and he's considered an Onus. What does it mean? He killed himself, he committed suicide, he's an Onus. What? Kishol HaMelech, like Shol HaMelech, Ein Moinin Mimenu Kol Davar. Whereas even though in the beginning of Shin Mem Hei what does it say? Somebody who takes his own life. Don't spend any time with him. They don't do Kri, etc. He says an exception would be Shol HaMelech, who did it, like the Medrash says, because of Yisurim. That's how the Shulchan Aruch Paskins. Now it's a question, did Shol do the, the correct thing or not? Beis Yosef goes back and forth on it. He Paskins in the end that Shol HaMelech was not considered an Abedatz Miladas. And one of the proofs they think is, as we see later on in Shmuel, that Kal Yisrael was nenash, that they weren't maspid Shmuel kilchasei. Now, if the Allah is that a ma'abed atzmiladas ain't misaskinimi, is certainly not maspid him, so why was there an oinish that he wasn't nispid kalacha? So you see clearly that Shol did the right thing. And the Beis Yosef continues, because remember, the Beis Yosef lives right right after the inc- period of the Inquisition, right after the Crusades. He says, During the Crusades, people didn't want their kids to be converted, so then when they were surrounded, Rahman Jews would kill their own children. He said, how is he, how were they allowed to do it? This is going according to the opinion that Bishas Hashmad, like Shechanani Mishol Vazari, you're allowed to take your own life, or if they're worried about torture. This is basically the base Yosef. 
Now the Ritzva in Avedah Zara and Yudchas Aleph asks a question. He says, the Gemara says, and this is the Asariah Rugim Malchus, we say this both on Tishabov and on Yom Kippah, Chanina ben Trajin, what happened, they tried, they tortured him to death. So they were roasting him, that Rahman, so they were burning him to death, and he, he was in terrible pain. So he told the fellow, the guy who was killing him, that if you if you make it quick, I'll guarantee you Oilam Haba, right? But he himself did not want to open his mouth to let the heat in. The Gemara says if he would have let the heat in, he would have died quickly. So why didn't he? If you're allowed to kill yourself because of Yisurim, like Chanani Mishal of Azari, or like Shol, he had both dinim, Yusurim, why didn't he want to open his mouth and hasten his own death? It would seem that suicide in his case is Asa. So that is the question of the Ritva on this Rabbeinu Tam, who is the one who said that you're allowed to kill yourselves or children during the Crusades. And he blibes by Tzarechi in the Ritva. And Paiskim, who, who believe that in these cases of like Shol, like Shol says, like the Shol says that you're allowed to kill yourself, they say that Hanina ben Trajin was a Midas Hasidus. In other words, you're allowed to do it, but it doesn't mean you should do it. Okay, you're allowed to. And he didn't want to do what you're allowed to. It's Nidzcha, it's not Hutra. So he said, you're allowed to. I, I don't do something that's just that. I, I would only do it if you, you, you're supposed to. You're not supposed to. So he didn't do it. That's how they would answer that. Now, the Yamshel Shleima, who lived, at the, he was contemporary, pretty much, of the Beis Yosef, he writes very sharply against it. He said, absolutely, there's never a heta for a person to take their own life. And he says, you see that Rabbi Kiva, Masarkin Psarei, he would do anything to b'makabal uh, all the Yisurim you have to, and don't take, and don't allow yourself to die. And as far as the Raya from uh, from Shol, he says, because Shol was afraid that if they tortured him, it would create a counterattack by Jews, by, by, you know, some, they would be very angry and would cause thousands of Yiplu Yisrael. So it's not a Raya from, from Shol. So basically, he says the, it's not a Raya from Shol, and since we, it's not a Raya from Shol, all we're left with is the Gemara of Chaninim and Trajan, and therefore one is not allowed to commit suicide, even in cases of great stress, great duress. That's basically. Now here's where it gets interesting. There was a fellow called Reb Scholl Berlin. It was, sure, a huge guy in a rav in Germany. He lived in the mid-1700s, and he said he found a whole bunch of chuvis from the Rush, who lived in the 1300s, and he printed them in a sefer called Besamim Reich. It's a very famous story, and many, it was a big machlekes, till today almost, is are these really forgeries, or are they, are they not? And one of the key proofs that they say this is a forgery is the following tshuva, where he was asked, can somebody who is, uh, somebody's going through very difficult times, and he's broken, he's chaser lechem, he's, he's poverty-stricken, and depressed, and he says, Ma'asti I'm, I'm, I have no reason to live anymore, and he killed himself, are you allowed to do Avelis? And basically, he says, quote-unquote, from the rush, he brings this raya that quote unquote from the rush that you see Shoal killed himself so you're allowed to kill yourself in that situation and they bring this it was like a startling thing that you know from the rush that you're allowed to kill you that somebody says and this is one of the cases that proves that they bring it's impossible that the rush wrote something like this and therefore it must be uh, uh, safe from Mizui if this is one of the prime rights which is interesting because the Shulchanar actually paskins that somebody's who's Ma'abedatzmai Kishol is he's not considered Ma'abedatzmai but he 
and the some safer arguers on him, etc. What is the lundus like? So we and, and basically from there we have all the all the outcomes. You know, we'll put some of the cases, but Vavadia brings a whole bunch of people who are being chased by the mafia of Chayvis. So uh, you have Reb Shloimeh Kluga. He says a person who kills themselves. He's basically he says it's a double death, being you know by having multiple creditors chase you. And in those days they put people in jail and whatever else they did to them. Like the the mob says they don't need collateral. You're the collateral. He said such a person doesn't have a dinner mob. We have other questions about people who are extremely sick, etc. We'll put the Maramakaimus up online. Lania's deity, what's the lumbus of the Machlaikis? Is it, do we have a riot from Shoal? Don't we have a riot from Shoal? To me, this would be how Alamdin would look at it. He would say, look, it says, Achaz Dimchamel Nafshechem. You know, a person's not allowed to kill themselves. Those are the Zion mitzvahs b'nei noyach. Now, the Zion mitzvahs b'nei noyach, we, we've spoken about in the past. There are opinions. What is the reason for it? In other words, we said a chilek that brought in the Paiskim, let's say, between Loisertzach and the din of, uh, of Dam Adam Ba'adam, of the, the Isser of Ritzich and Zion mitzvahs b'nei noyach. The Zion b'nei mitzvahs is done so that society should be able to exist. Ishis Riyayu Chaim Baloy. You can't have anarchy. So therefore, as Rav Sternbach writes, if somebody's at the end of life and he's in, it was a South African hospital and he was in great pain, it was a guy, he says, since the whole Issa Ritzicha by him is from, from the Zion Mitzvah B'nai Noyach, if, if a just government said, look, this, this is the right thing to do for this person, so he said a hospital would be allowed to, or at least a guy should, the doctor in the hospital would be allowed to help this person, to, would be allowed to take this person's life, like pull the plug on them, etc., if they saw they were suffering. Why? Because these are the Nimusim, this is the culture, this is the civilization, that you're living in, it's a just government, is what people decided. Leisertza, however, has no reasons to it. It's exerisakasiv, it has nothing to do with what people decided, and therefore, al-sadin of Leisertza, a person would never be allowed to, let's say, uh, end the life of somebody who's very ill. That's a chilik he makes. So I would say the same thing here. I would say, if you learn it from achaz dim chamanav so you have in the ach, you have a riboy, you have a miyat, you would say, look, you know, um, somebody who, who is under great pain, like Shaul who's going to be tortured, like Shaul Okay, there's a meat, right? Okay, very good. But here's the chilek. So some say we learn it from the Sheva Mesus Benayach, and that's it. But the others learn no. Once we learn from Achaz Dimchamonav Shisechem that killing yourself is usher, why? Because your body doesn't belong to you. Now that we have the chiddush that your body doesn't belong to you, it's not your body, so then it just falls under the regular leiseretzach that we have all the time. What does it matter if you kill yourself or if you kill somebody else? The both of Nisra leiseretzach. After was nischadish and nizayin mitzvahs benenoyach. That is an isa to kill yourself. So then it becomes a regular leiseretzach, and therefore for Yisrael it would be aser alf leiseretzach, not alf nizayin mitzvahs benenoyach. So the question is, if we say the whole din to kill oneself blibes a sheva mitzvahs benenoyach dikadin, so you have chilukim in cases where it's humane, you're allowed to. If we say no, if the Wemachadashit, it becomes a regular Ritzicha, so it falls under the, 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 the rubric of Leisertzach, so then Avadi, you're not allowed to. That's how the Lumdum of the Velt would, uh, would explain the Shaila. But these are basically the, the Makairis, and, and it's around these Makairis that the, the Tumul goes. Right, Chanina Ben Tradian, Chanina Ben Tradian, etc. By the way, you know, the Paiskim say that the Chanin, even if we hold like the Shulchan Aruch that says that Shola Melech is, so then why did Chanin Ben Tradin? So some say it's Amidus Chasidus. There is another possible answer. And the possible answer is he did it during a Shnas Hashmad. And a Shas Hashmad is a din of Yehorig Valyavar. Yehorig Valyavar could be Machayev. That is a Chiv to be Yehorig in that case, not to be Yehorig Atzmai. I'm a Svara, I'm a Muzga that I'm throwing out there. Hello, my name is Yisrael Kramer. I wanted to answer the three riddles 
the two questions about Avramavino as his status as a Kohen Gadol, so how could he Matamit Sara and how could he marry Ketura if she's Hagar, it's Maksim Rishasa. In general, the claw when it comes to the Avos and keeping the Torah, that because the Torah had not been given yet, if there was Feshbonos that they felt for Tikkun Olam, they were allowed to not keep the Torah. The most uh, obvious example is the of marrying uh, Rachel and Leah and even Dol and Zopo, if they were sisters. For Tikkun Olam, they're allowed to. So to bury Sarah, we can understand that there was a tremendous amount of Tikkun Olam. Even for Hagar, you could just assume that, although the Bereshit Rabba brings down because of the Lashon and the Pasuk of Yosef, Avram, the Medish Rabbi says that it was Al-Piyad Dibur, and for sure, he understood what Hashem told him to, that it was important to go against the normal Mahalach and uh, to keep the Torah, and they were allowed to make Cheshvonus before the Torah was given. Obviously, after the Torah was given, there's no Cheshvonus that can be made. In regards to the, the B'nai Keturah, that Rashi brings down Sadi Aleph in the Sanhedrin, and it was Mesa uh, Shed and and Kesofim. So the Marsha assumed, because it would be a problem of Lifna either, that it must be that he uh, holds this is according to the Mandamar that it's not also for Ben Noah to uh, do this stuff. I focused in the Gemara earlier in the, in the, in the Tachta, but uh, there's a few other answers given on the Yudzayin Amid Aleph in Sanhedrin. So the Gemara brings down that for to be part of Sanhedrin, one of the things that the Yochanan says that you have to be a Balik Shafim. And of course, that only meant that they should know. They have to be knowledgeable. It's interesting, Rabbi Yochanan himself is the one that goes through a cheshbon in, uh, in other places, whether uh, the Chacham should teach how to do gzela, but it might be a problem, maybe it'll lead people to do gzela, and he ends up saying that's better to teach it, and Hashem will make sure that the straight ones remain straight. But similarly, Rabbi Yochanan is saying here as well that uh, that Balik Shav just means, means the knowledge, it could be he's just teaching the knowledge, Obviously, this would be against Marsha's issue of Lufneiver, and I guess you could come with Cheshbonah, so it's not Lufneiver. Um, the Gerai brings down that uh, it just meant to protect them from these things because they're going to the east where there was a lot of Kishif and Shadim, and so it was just to protect them. Then it for sure wouldn't be Lufneiver in that case. And that's what the Art Scroll brings down, the Shamer of Vigna Miller, that. It was uh, just science. We know that Aravina, I don't think he says this point, Aravina had the Sefi Yitzira, and it was passed down through the generations until Shlomo Malach, and then it was uh, uh, hidden. But uh, the knowledge of science, which if you uh, if you don't know it, then imagine a cell phone 100 years ago, it looked like it's... Uh, it, it, lo- it would look like it's magic. That's what he taught them. He taught them just science, which would appear to be uh, that it looks like a might be shaven. It's, uh, I think that there's a figure about magic. If people don't know that something is, could be done, I mean, nowadays you're allowed to perform magic tricks because everyone knows that it's a magic trick. 
but there is a suga. What about if people don't realize that it's magic and they could actually think that it's magic because you're in a world where there is magic, so there is that potential issue as well, even according to this, that it might be a problem, but it could be that even if you hold that grime are mitzvah uh, on not use uh, kishif, it could be that level of kishif would not be included in that side. Thank you very much. Hi, it's Moshe Cohen with the answers to the questions of the week. If Avraham was a Kohen Gadol, that may be. Jesus says in Baobasa that Moses, coming from the Gemara in Nazir, that Avraham Avino was not a Jew. Um, I don't know if he was a guy, he doesn't stay in the country of distinction to other guy, but he wasn't Jewish. Avraham says he didn't have the mitzvahs yet. In help of Malachim. So, whatever he was, he was a kind girl who was not Jewish. Perhaps his Allahs were a little different than a regular kind girl that we know of. It was in a Grusha and in Tumma and all that. So, um, whatever it means, he's a kind girl, maybe he was a much regular kind girl. There's a way to reach Lafna on the same. I don't know what these things mean, but doesn't really mean that he is a normal, ordinary tangled with all halacha. With regard to Avram giving them a shame of Tuma, so that is a rare shayla. Marau asks the question, and he says that Avram Avinu gave him a shame that they should use it to get rid of the fact of the bukim or something, whatever, nezek is from Kishuf, and not that they should actually use it. I think about a few other kibunim. First of all, maybe a person understands Kishuf is a lot of uh, cultists. Fachma, he gave them that to do. Uh, not to use it, per se, but to understand it. Or Kishuf is only also for a guy, according to them, according to Shimon, if it's Makhish, Pamayu, Shamayu, it's if it contradicts Hashem's decree, somebody Hashem's decree and somebody to die and you make the person live with Kishu. But a person makes his coffee eat up faster with Kishu, could be that's not a problem. Um, and another thought that I had, I don't know if this is uh, correct, is that a person is using Kishu as part of the Barishlam's Kishu that he gave the world, that would be Muta. The person is using Kishu as part of a Vajazara, as if there are Kishas outside of the Barislam and there are ways of getting around the Barislam and his world, that would be helpful. So uh, the same Kishas depends on how you use it. If you use it in a sense of a Vajazara, it's also if you use it as a sense of a practical tool that the Barislam created for us to use, that would be Muta. Um, Hello, well, this is Tiago Konigsberg. I wanted to answer the riddles. Masha over there asked the Kasha. He says that we find this halacha of that you can't teach is loisumet lasses atalomud lahavin ulahiris. Or he says that we're going like Rashi, that's going like the Ben Noach is not mitzvah halakishuf. So you could say that we're going like that man the Omar. And there are those that want to say that um the 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 Sayyid Hadwarmi is that um 
a, a guy is not allowed to learn Dafka, he doesn't need it for anything. But if he needs it to be able to live, in order to be Matl Atmoy or others, is that's Motor. The the Bisyasim Yerdeasim Kupayim test, it says the Dafka is a Maitis author. But Hashvo is Motor Kriel Hatmo Atmoy Achir. The Maitha on the second terrace, we find that Haga was a, a Pilegesh. And Pilegesh might be different. He, it was a, it was a, a different sort Kedushin. It wasn't a regular um, Kedushin. And we find that he... The the Achrayim say that the the way that he was able to be chayzer, even though it was also for him to marry um, uh, Bnei Keturah, was al al pi al I'm sorry that what was the hat for him to marry a mitzvah? It was al pi hadibur. over here we could say that it was al pi hadibur. The the measures brings down the Rishon's Rabbah Samachal Dalad that it was al pi hadibur. So we hear also it was al pi hadibur. What he was saying about Sarah Imenu, how was he Taka um able to bury her? Sounds like um the measure brings down that Yitok wasn't around, he was in kind of Eden according to that shot that he was there for three years, so he wasn't over there, Michal, and probably Shmo wasn't there, so she lived the base mitzvah. She lived the base mitzvah. There was a heter for a Kayangala to to be Isaac. In, in, um, or you could say like the Peter Sugyos, um, Tadikim Anat Metamen. I have to say, we find a big Vikuach about it. Um, the Marbabasa sounds like, and we were going and, um, we signed to the, the cavern, but there are many, Achrinim bring down that, that Tadikim Anat Metamen. Maybe we could go with that Mahalach. Hi, I would like to answer the riddle of this week. Um, the question of how was Avramino allowed to go to the Kura is because she was a Tzadikist, and a Tzadik is not Metame, like one of the Baratoises, Rabbi Nechaim Akoyin, holds that he could have gone to Rabbi Tams. And the second question that how was he allowed to take back Keturah as is because he made a Tanai before he gave Hogar a get. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Sean Parnas. I want to leave an answer to your first riddle of the week, which was how could Avram teach? Is B'nai Keturah Kishaf, if Kishaf is also B'nai Meh, according to Shimon. So I saw a number of answers about this. Um, <coughs> the Marshal, I think Asan Art asked the question. I believe his answer is that there are certain times that it's not to do Kishaf. For example, when you're protecting yourself or you're trying to stop Kishaf, because we're in the Gemara and then the other Gemaras, and Especially, I saw someone even was like this that 
the Venectura went to Eretz Kedem, which is the place where Bilam came from. He says, that that was the place where they used to do a lot of Kishra from the Mela. Avram Avinu taught his children Kishra for self-defense. I did see another chat that Rashi says Shem Tumma, and there are those who learn. I think it's the Sheet of the Rush learns that Shem Tumma refers only to Lance Shadim, not Kishof, unlike Rashi. In Cain, according to the Rush, I believe it's worth Anishofan also that Lance Shadim Taka and not Uther, even for uh, Yisrael, it could be it's not Uther to be on Mashbiya Shadim, it's just unadvisable. And the M. Cain for a guy to sure not Uther. Also. This is an answer to the question of how Avraman is considered a Kandela because the Medrash was master to the Shofite. Uh, the Ramah says the Kodam Atmosphere, um, it was in a condition of religion. They would just be together and then they would be considered married um, and then be separated and considered back together again. If there was no Gerushin, if there was no Gerushin, then there would uh, there be no Master of the Shofite. Rashi also says that uh, Shalom, this is Abba Wolf. I'm calling about the weekly questions, riddle, about Abraham Avinu being a kind Godel. And this is obviously all talking kind of monetary, but we'll go along with the halacha. But I do believe that you would make that, uh, you know, however it works out in Durosh is good enough. Um, because he wasn't actually a performing Kohen Gadol, he didn't have a real din of a Kohen Gadol, it's all a hidden mountain tire they could then. I'll call upon him, as far as the kvura of his wife, that so she was a mason mitzvah, a number of unfortunate point out that Yitzchak w- wasn't there. He had gone up, he had gone to learn in yeshiva, or like the Archaim HaKadosh says, he, the Zayar HaKadosh I think says that he was actually Gishachten, and he was Nifter at that point, him, there was nobody else, no other years for sure, to bury Sorry, man, so kind of little Matamas or Mace Mitzvah. Marrying Keturah is a little bit more difficult. But if we go with Rashi, which is not like the Messiah, Rashi says that Pilag Shem the Messiah that we have has its Chmole, but if we go that Hagar Du it's not so bad because he had been married to her previously, which is. Hashtis also after he became a Goyen Gadol, but then at least we'll say that she was, uh, she might have been a Naira Basula at that point. Um, we don't have any Ryan out like that. And she, I guess we'll say that she was given to Sarai as a Pach Mibas Shalish, which would mean that 10 years later, she was Taka um, Basyud Beis. So Al Koponim, he was allowed to marry her then, and to remarry her the second time. So you quoted a message with Acha Gerishin, but Lamaisa, the Gerishin of those days was just that he would be Mashalach her if he wasn't interested in her. Um, there's a big debate about Shalach Getpiturin by Nebuzaradan, uh, by um, Tornus Rufus, uh, about how a guy's Gerishin works. But it could very well be that since she was Sagar as Pischa, Afterwards, like Rashi brings down, so she's basically not masking to the Gershon, so to speak. She's not being masked herself, Loilam. So it could be in such a case, she's considered to be just separated but not divorced, and therefore he could take her back. Um, 
as far as Again, I mean, we could always employ the Ramban, the Kaidman Taira, they can make Cheshbainis, and Shechaim talks about it, that after Mantair you can't, but Kaidman Taira they can do Aver Lishma, something like that. As far as the other Shaila, Benegea too, the Shem Tumma Masalahem. So it could be, I think some of them, as far as Medich Kuni says, Shem Bitumma Masalahem, he gave it to him, they should have the Shem even Bitumma. But we'll go along with the Pashas that he gave them over Kishif, which is also to have been Noyach. But it could be that it's not also the Machapukul Nefesh. So if a Ben Noyach could employ, let's say, like the Chinese have this new age medicine, which revels his really old age medicine, is that shame to a Muslim, he wanted to think. Um, so if a Ben if a Ben Noyach would be able to employ that Zichr Machapukul Nefesh of a Yid, maybe even Machapukul Nefesh of a guy, to do Kishif and things like that, it might not be a Hargval Yavr. Um, now, you had, I think you once discussed the Indian of of um, killing an over abortion, which to a guy might be considered a tzicha and to a yid not, and therefore it would be worse for a guy for a guy a doctor practitioner to do it than a yid. Over here, I don't see that it would make a chilek, even though for a yid it's a lav and for a guy it's it's a misa, but not because it's it has a muhammadic din for him. It's not it's not that the kishif is is intrinsically worse. Just it just comes with a heavier einish. So in that case, I would think that it would be mutter for them to know it and even to practice it in such cases. Agav the Sanhedrin also had to know Kishif, so just to know it, you know, not for practical use is, is perfectly mutter. Um, and as far as them using it against Yisrael, so there's a Sugi and Shabbos that could involve but ain't Mazel Yisrael, and that they wouldn't be affected by it in any way except the Mosharach of Nekedem, where they wouldn't present too much of a danger, at least in the history of Yisrael's history.